One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, hi, and welcome. I am your host, Emigrant Awardner, and in my nearly 20-year career as a beauty and health writer, I have interviewed a lot of people, supermodels, entrepreneurs, authors, celebrities, and doctors, and many of these conversations had a real impact on me, and I'd come away feeling inspired, excited, informed, and really empowered, and at the back of my mind, I'd always think, I wish I could just publish the tape so people could really feel that conversation. Well, on this podcast, you get to feel the conversation. I talk with experts, guests, and a few friends who I hope will inspire, inform, and empower you, and maybe also challenge you, whether you're looking for self-help, self-improvement, beauty advice, health insights, business know-how, or just some good old-fashioned life advice and a bit of a laugh. It's all here. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the podcast, where I am delighted to say that I'm joined by author... BAFTA-winning screenwriter and martial arts expert, Jeff Thompson. Where on earth do I begin with this episode? Well, if you remember at the beginning of the year, uh, the beginning of 2020, I told you, my most excellent listeners, that I was committed to challenging myself on the show in 2020. And that meant featuring topics and guests that, I guess if I'm trying to boil it down into what I'm trying to say, I wanted to try and tackle people and conversations that weren't in my comfort zone and might be a little unexpected when you saw them pop up in this podcast feed. And you know what happens when you do something like this and you start trying to sort of, you know, reach out from your comfort zone into your discomfort zone, as it were, is you get a lot of no's and you get a lot of blowback and it doesn't necessarily go your way, but that's part of the process. Um, You also met with a lot of silence, but not with Jeff. With Jeff, it all fell into place And I really was expecting a no. So the fact he was so open to talking to me was incredible. He is, as I said, a a writer, a filmmaker, a teacher and a self-defense instructor who up until the age of 30 worked on the factory floor and was a bouncer in one of the UK's roughest cities. And I wanted to speak to Jeff for several reasons. I kept hearing his name. People who I really respected kept mentioning him. Then I was reading a book, uh, John McAvoy, The Athlete's Autobiography, and he referenced Jeff. So I very much believe that if you hear, see or feel something crosses your path more than three times or three times or more, you should explore it. So I reached out and within a a day, Jeff and I were chatting on email. For me, he is the ultimate example of someone who has been the architect of his own life. Circumstances may have shaped him as they shape us all. But once he realised he could override those circumstances, he made significant changes. And by significant changes, I mean he went from working in a factory to being a BAFTA-winning screenwriter. And I don't just want to sort of boil it down to the rags-to-riches, factory-to-film stars narrative. There's so much more to this story, trust and believe. But in realising that he could shape his own reality, he committed to sharing everything he learned along the way so that others could do the same. And I happen to think that the very act of admitting, this is how my life is now, I'm not happy and I want to change it, I think that is huge. Knowing what you want your life to look like and making it happen... That's epic. Sharing that journey with others so they can rewrite their story. Well, dare I say, I think that's magical. 
which is why I'm so glad I'm able to share this conversation with you. And when I was researching Jeff, the word alchemist kept coming up and it's so, so apt. You can turn darkness into light, you can turn bad into good. And this is something that comes up time and time again. And honestly, it's one of the most empowering messages I think I've heard. And I'm not going to lie to you, as Jeff shared his story with me, I realized I was way out of my depth. (laughs) He is unlike anyone I have ever spoken to. The work he has done, the books he has read, his level of understanding about himself and the world made me realize I had to up my game. So going back to what I said at the top of this intro, I set about seeking out conversations and guests this year, specifically, that would challenge me. And well, I really got what I wanted in this episode, and I'm not too proud to say it. I got a bit lost. I realized that I was learning and so I shut up and I let Jeff do the talking and I found it to be a really powerful and incredibly moving experience and in this conversation Jeff shares his story with me how he took a long hard look at his life and slowly but surely made the changes he needed in order to live an authentic life. He talks about educating himself and we're talking extensive reading here. He shares the power of forgiveness and how to do it facing and minimizing your fears and how to know when you're on the right path. And there's so much more that we talk about, but I could, the conversation's a long one and the intro will be even longer if I actually go through everything that we talked about. But I did want to say one thing before we get into the actual conversation, and that's about my experience on the day. Getting the time with Jeff and setting up this conversation was actually very easy, so much so that I sort of freaked out and thought, oh, um, I'm not ready. Oh, I need a bit more time. But I was not in a, and <laughs> as is probably you can understand I was not in a great headspace around the time that we were organizing this and I became riddled with fear about it I was scared of the train journey to go and see him that I wouldn't be able to get a cab to the venue that my kit wouldn't work that he'd think I was stupid so in the run-up to this I placed a lot of invisible imagined barriers between me and this actually happening and when we stopped recording we chatted about this And Jeff said something, because I felt very safe with him, trust me. And Jeff said something to me that I remind myself of every day now, which is where there is resistance, there is reward. So even though those barriers weren't real, they were presenting a resistance. And I had to, in my mind, crash through them. And it was so worth it. This conversation with Jeff was so worth it. And I really, really hope you enjoy it too. So here he is, Jeff Thompson on The Emma Gunn Show. Jeff Thompson, it is quite frankly an honour to have you on the show. So thank thank you you for joining me. You are, well, your story is incredible. And I have already told you about the first time that I found out about you. You many, many years ago. And it, and it wasn't, I didn't know your name. I just knew about this man who had written a book in his lunch hour at a factory in the toilet on yeah. a reporter's notepad. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's very true. A book that has gone on to be turned into a film. Film, stage play, short film. The first short film we did, we got Ray Winston. We had a 10-minute film with not enough money to pay for Ray Winston's lunch. And we managed <laughs> to get Ray Winston and Paddy Considine to do this film because it had truth in it. Yeah. It had truth in it. We, the book had something in it of truth. Mm. Um, that was written on a toilet, yeah. <laughs> amazing. It's amazing, isn't it? It is amazing. So I have heard about, so that was the first time I heard about you. And then various, the the world's been knocking at my door going, Jeff Thompson, Jeff Thompson, Jeff Thompson for a little while. My brother's talked about you. My friend John has talked about you. And then I read about you in a book and I thought, right, I'm going to reach out. And 
as I took that cue for find out a bit more about Jeff Thompson, your story is the most inspirational and admirable story. I think I wonder that I've ever come across. Wow, that's very kind. Thank you. Um, but it, a true response, and it's so transformative, and it's almost difficult to know where to begin. But for me, it's the fact that you, at a point in time, said, "My life is a story." And I'm not writing that story. Yeah. I'm letting circumstances and other people write the pages. Screw that. I'm going to write it. Yeah, it's very true. And, um, yeah, and I guess we sort of go back to your incredible Genesis story. You were 10 years on the door in Coventry. Yeah. And for people who aren't listening, is Coventry a nice sleepy town with little to no trouble? When I was doing the door, it was... Polled as the most violent city in Europe for its size and population. Wow. It was just, it, it's a very charismatic city. Uh, the people are very colourful, they're very individual, but it was very violent at that mm. time. Even the hot dog stands had bouncers mm. because it was so violent. It was a two year kind of, um, I guess it was a two year kick, a two generational kick where, you know, the early part of the last century, People were coming from all over the world to work in Coventry. It was the an, industri an industrial hub mm. for cars and all the rest of it. So it was a massive amount of work. So people came from Jamaica, from India, from all over Britain, from Glasgow, from all over the world, really, to work in Coventry. Within two generations, the car industry had died. It was gone. Mm. So suddenly you've got this great culture mix of people in a city with no work mm. the energy has to displace somewhere and it displaced in the 80s in massive violence i mean four of my friends were murdered during the time i was working it was it wasn't an exaggeration to say it was violent so a guy that worked the door would get four times the, the wage of a normal person because you you know just by the by the fact that you put on a dicky boat you were taken on all comers mm. so you at least had to be as tough as the toughest man in the city, or at least prepared to stand in front of him and say, you can't come in this club. Mm. So it was... Uh, to, to say that it was violent would be disingenuous of me because it's a hugely colourful, charismatic city with mm. its own poetry, which I love. That's mm. my, my writing is... The rhythm of my writing is Coventry. It has a universal flow, but it's a, it's a, it has a Coventry rhythm, mm. which I love and I listen to and I pick up um, but it was a hugely violent city, yeah. So the environment sculpted me. I wanted to find out who I was. Mm. And I wanted to find out I was a martial artist who was frightened of a spider in the bath. I wanted to find out what worked. And the, that, that environment was an environment that you walked into and it demanded truth, nothing less. The, the, uh, the tolerances were so tight that one mistake you could you could lose you your life absolutely yeah. it was so violent so you went into that environment and it was like an acid bath it literally took away any any dross anything that wasn't real anything that wasn't authentic it went away so it was it was kind of uh in a way it was metaphysical because it was like um performing apophatic theology this is the theology of negation where you get rid of anything that isn't god in order to find what is god mm. or get rid of anything that isn't you to get to find out who you are or get rid of, rid of anything that isn't authentic to find out only what is authentic so you end up this raw gristle of pragmatism what what you found there was so 
um, pragmatic and so beautiful and so raw. That's why characters were were sculpted there because it was so real. The environment, but the environment gave you that. It went mm. in and it said, "This is what's real," and either you you adapt to that or uh, you end up very badly injured or killed or, you know, on a psychiatrist's couch. And I've witnessed a lot of my friends go through all of those and nearly been there myself a few times. So the environment itself was what gave you the truth. And I recognised why... I kept thinking, why aren't all of these these gods out there in the martial arts, why aren't they, why aren't they seeing this? And, of course, because they didn't want to go into that environment because that environment took away everything that wasn't real, including all the things you sold as a business for your martial arts, all of the things that you thought were you, all of the, all of the things, all of the furniture around your life just disappeared and you ended up with just this Spartan Zen way of living, you know. So it was a, a beautiful delicious uh but very um violent initiation but i loved it but I, I guess if i go back two steps i went on there because i had a depression often mm. we don't find what we want in our life until we hit a crisis mm-hmm. i hit a crisis i had a very dark depression and this depression just used to come into my life and wipe me out and go my name's depression see you again soon I, w- I will be back now i found you once i'll find you again and again ad infinitum mm. and it used to just destroy me this depression used to destroy me then at this one point this one point in the in, the, in this latest depression where it took me so low that i just i don't know from somewhere i found anger i found rage and i just thought i'm not having this anymore i'm not having it I've got a wife, I've got children. I'm not going to give my life up to this chemical factory in my body. I'm not going to do that. So I decided in this moment of clarity, in this moment of crisis, to write down everything I was afraid of. I put it on a fear pyramid. I put the least fear on the bottom step, the worst fear on the top step, and systematically started to confront all the things I was afraid of. When did you write the fear pyramid? Was this during the bouncing years? No, this was before. The bouncing was one of the steps on my pyramid. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I realised that my ultimate step at the time was a fear of violent confrontation. Mm -hmm. So I became a doorman to become desensitised to that. I thought, I'll just have one or two nights on the door, (laughs) tick that off my list, and and I'll get beyond this this feeling of fear that I have all the time. So the fear pyramid really was my first lesson in um, apophatic theology, this idea of um, finding purity through negation, getting rid of everything that wasn't real, everything that wasn't me, everything that wasn't pure. So I started to confront the things I was afraid of and realised, of course, as I confronted them, that they didn't really exist. They They only existed as perceptions in me and the perceptions triggered a chemical cocktail And I realised, to cut a long story short, that I wasn't really afraid of anything other than my own body chemistry. Mm. My own body chemistry and my own internal dialogue was kicking sand in my face. So I started to do exercises to to become desensitised to the feelings. I started to find exercises that would allow me to switch the feelings off or lessen the feelings, you Mm. know, like diaphragmatic breathing to trigger the... Parasympathetic, the parasympathetic hormone, uh, the parasympathetic nervous system. So I started to really encourage me to study mm. and to educate myself. Um, and, it, you know, it took me towards books. It took me towards teachers. It, it made me expand my boundaries. <clears throat> so I was no longer this working class kid 
uh, with no any particularly no real education um, and you know f frightened of everything frightened of words frightened of change more than anything frightened of my my wife frightened of my mom but not aware that I was frightened of them so I went from this 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 kind of guy that was unlettered to somebody that was just suddenly reading voraciously but not just reading but taking the lessons and putting them out into the world and finding what works and what doesn't work <clears throat> and that's why the door was such a great reference point because you you went on there and it was an honest arbitrator it told you what worked it showed you it was like a third person it was like your soul was teaching you it was saying oh you're in this environment well done you've got here you broke through a boundary you're no longer a, a normal kid. You are a man that is risking his life to acquire knowledge. Mm. And I don't mean wisdom and I don't mean understanding. They're different. I mean knowledge. Wisdom is like the, the initial intuition and, and understanding is when you cogitate it and, and move it around and, and try to understand it. Knowledge is when you've experienced it and you know it. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that's what, that's what the door taught me. So it wasn't just about standing on the door and finding out what worked in a real fight. It was about educating myself. It was about learning to articulate what I'd learned in order to pass it on to others. I'll tell you what, I'll, if I, I, I know I'm talking, but I, I'll tell you what, what triggered it, and this is the secret. When I was depressed, and I was very depressed, and afraid and alone, I used to wake up at four in the morning in a cold sweat, thinking it's another long day, you know. I... I remember thinking I'm going to try and find some books to try and understand what's going on and try and help myself. And all of the books I went to, even the ones that said we have the answers, didn't give me the answers. And I was so upset and so disappointed that they said, this is a book that's going to tell you about fear. And it was just another book that was saying, I don't feel fear, I've mastered fear. Mm. And no one was giving me any answers. And I remember saying, when I find the truth, I'm going to tell everybody. I'm going to tell everybody. And that was what, that was the genesis of, uh, everything I did, which was uh, not really thinking about myself, thinking about all the other kids that must be waking up at four in the morning in a cold sweat who are afraid to live. You know, like Mesner when he's climbing Nangapabat, too, too afraid to go up, too afraid to go down, too afraid to stay where he is, afraid at that point to, to be alive, mm. you know. That's how I felt. I was afraid to be alive. And I thought, I'm going to write a book and I'm going to tell everybody the truth. And that's what I've been doing ever since. I've been trying to find what the truth is and then telling people what it is and putting it into books. And um, so there's been a whole process of, uh, of taking myself into exacting environments to, um, to acquire truth. Mm. And to test yourself, because there's a, there's, a there's a lot to unpack there. And I think the thing that really struck me personally because of my experience which the listeners will know about with depression is that for a long time I wallowed in it yeah and for a long time it was pr probably my identity and it informed my interactions and everything and the only point at which I was able to make a difference was when I accepted well do something about it yeah and it sounds really obvious well of course of course you know but if someone is depressed or down, the worst thing you can say is, oh, just get over it, pull yourself yeah. out of it. It's not as easy as that. But that kind of, you have to take ownership and At say... At some point, you've got to own it. And you've got to ask yourself, is this a harbinger of doom or is this a messenger of hope? 
Mm. What's it asking me to look at? What does it? What's it telling me? Because that energy that is trying to stop you from living is actually is actually the prime energy to convert into light, or you know, that's, that's allegorical, but to turn into knowledge. That you can convert that. If you've got the courage to turn into it, lean into the sharp edges, as the Buddhists say, mm. that energy is the actual energy you need um, to convert into a wider consciousness. So it's, it's a vital part of uh, the creative mix. Mm. People are afraid by it, afraid of it, so they... Um, you know, they'll drown in alcohol or, or they'll wallow in it, which is a way of, you know, the, the, what Eckhart Tolle calls the pain body, feeding itself, pain feeding off pain, sorrow feeding off sorrow, drama feeding off drama. Um, so we have to start looking at it and going, you know, we always look at it and think it's the harbinger of doom. So we get to tablets, we get um, anything we can to take ourselves away from the feelings, but the feelings are the messengers, the feelings... The feelings of a message of hope, which is, you know, there is a broader world, there is a wider density that you're not seeing. It's all around you, it's everywhere. And in order to get to that, you have to go through this meteor belt of chemical, um, you know, chemicals in your body. And they are, they are what you convert, they are what give you the fuel to break out. So they're necessary. So the key is always to lean in. And I used to dare them, step in, come in. <clears throat> they'd sweep over my body. You know, like like an arm, like an army with with banners. You know, and I would go, come in, have a sit down. Do you want a cup of tea? Let me take care of you. Do you want to meet my wife? Stay, stay as long as you want, because the threat, of course, is I'm going to stay. I'm going to stay forever. If I wander off, I might come back again. It, this as a this semi-autonomous energy has a voice. You know, but when you start to recognise, which I did, that it has no existence if you don't engage it. Because it's a, it is a feeling and a voice that rises, um, and um, it's ordained. It wants it wants you to consume it in order to expand, mm. but it will it will rise in order to uh, claim or be claimed. If it claims you, then you are you are incarnated into a place of depression, mm. and that might last for a day or it might last. I mean, some people are in a limbo of suffering for whole lifetimes, aren't they? Mm. So the idea is when it comes up and it rises up is that you see it, you observe it, and you don't engage it. And that's the practice, you don't engage it. Mm. You just look at it and go, okay, I'm going to convert this. So it's um, uh, just inviting it in. It, I'm, I'm saying this and it may, I'm making it sound easy. It's tremendously difficult because it wears lots of hats. It puts on different voices. It uses rhetoric. It's very clever. And it will sneak into your consciousness in any way it can, but it is there to help us, it's there to guide us, it's there to say to us, you are living in a world that is too small. Or as one of my messengers said to me, Jeff, how you, you and your small courage, you and your small courage, which I loved. This messenger came to me as a huge white tiger in a meditation and brushed up against me and I felt this terror. And I went to stroke it, but I felt this terror and it says, Jeff, you and your small courage. And it was just saying to me, think bigger. You know, don't just do things that are difficult, easy. Do things that are difficult, difficult. Mm. Difficult, difficult, easy is things that we do and everyone goes, that's difficult. But for us, it's easy because we've done it a million times. Yeah. But difficult, difficult is when there's no map. And, and if there is a map, it changes every day. So it's encouraging and it's saying there is a bigger, there is a bigger density beyond this world. Mm -hmm. um, and to get there, you're going to need fuel. 
you're going to need consciousness. And what you have to do is convert this feeling as it comes up, so it's there for, conver for conversion. In esoteric practice, they call it feeding the bear. And when this feeling rises up, if you don't engage it and you're able to observe it without engagement, the bear is feeding you. So this, this negativity is converted into light. If you engage it and you fall into fear and you fall into terror and you take all of the things you can to try and hide from it, then the, the bear is feeding off you. So we ask ourselves, am I feeding the bear or is the bear feeding me? There's lots of allegories, but that it all comes to the same thing, which is this feeling rises. Uh, your reality exists at the level of engagement. If you engage that, that's your reality. Your reality is, yeah, the world is small. Yeah, politicians are corrupt. Uh, yeah, there are violent terrorists out there. And yeah, all the greedy bankers. And it's all their fault. And, you know, and I'm waiting for, I'm waiting for assistance. Why isn't anybody helping me? You know, it makes us impotent. Mm. But when you start going, yeah, well, there's a greedy politician out there, but I feel him in me as well. I feel that, I feel that in me. I, I, I feel greed in me and there is violent terrorists out there and I know enough about violence to know that potential's in me mm. and there are corrupt politicians but I know I know from my own history that I have done lots of corrupt things and I think corrupt thoughts I can't hide from that so it's a quiet conceit to project out and go the world is terrible mm. I go well how can I change what that if I can identify that in me I can convert it I can make room for God or room for consciousness or room for knowledge, whatever you want to call it. So all of these things that come up as darkness are really just um, places that we need to reclaim within ourselves. So it's not a harbinger of doom. It's a messenger of hope. So we change our perspective. It takes tremendous courage to to turn into this and not turn away. Um, but if you once you've once you have one victory over it, that becomes a reference point and you can go there again and again. You go, oh, I know how to do this. I understand it's a tight ritual. I also understand that it is ordained. It isn't a monster and it's not my enemy. <clears throat> that's just a perception, you know. You know, that's like a primitive man shaking his fist at the moon, you know, and being, <laughs> you know, recoiling that fire. We, we've got to expand ourselves. And the moment you turn into that and you start saying, I want to learn, I want to understand... And you start looking at all the things that other people don't want to look at, then assistance comes. You meet the right person, the right book lands on your doorstep, um, you hear the right conversation. And of course, God is omniscient, omnipotent, he's omnipresent. So he, he could as easily come through, you know, the pontiff in Rome as he could come through the stars in a Sunday newspaper. You know what I mean? There's no place that he won't talk to you. Mm. This energy will talk to you from everywhere and it wants you to expand. It's encouraging you to go beyond this, um, what the Buddhists call the great earth, where all the Buddhas come to perfect the way. It's, it's encouraging you to, to um, transcend this realm and go to other densities where the refining of the soul can continue. So the potential for growth it's infinite but it's got to start with you know uh how we get up in the morning you know it's no good saying i want to change the world when we can't change our socks once a day it's no good saying you know i want to take on the al-qaeda when we can't even settle an argument in our own house or in our own body you know it's no good you know wanting to do all of these grand things you know like aesop's fable turtle wants to fly but he still can't walk on the earth you know mm. so we go okay so what i say to people take your clothes off look in the mirror 
okay, let's have a look. Where is, where is, where is, if I look at my body as a world and, and it's an economy, where can I immediately start to work on, you know, making this raw and essential and getting rid of anything that isn't necessarily there? Am I overeating? Am I overdrinking? You know, am I, you know, taking in a lot of negative energy? Am I watching too many soaps? Where can I improve myself? Where can I refine myself? I don't need to worry about what's going on out there. I just need to concentrate on me. So we start with the obvious stuff. Get the palate right. Get the food right. And the palate isn't just about what we eat and drink. It's about what we eat and drink with the eyes, what we eat and drink with the ears. One of the things you've probably done innately, it seems to me anyway, is that you've started to uh, get a very healthy palate of uh, influences that you do on your podcast because you know your soul needs that kind of food. Um, and then you put it out to other people, and that's why you get. That's why you've got so many listeners, because what you're giving them is essence. It's pure. You know, it's not negativity. It's saying you can change, you can improve. But we've got to start with ourselves, and we can't ignore the obvious things. You know, because you know when people are overeating or they're overweight, uh, or they or their body becomes unhealthy, it's not what they're eating that's the concern, or what they're watching. It's what they're feeding. Mm-hmm. It's what's in them that rises up and goes. Yeah, let's have an extra pudding. Yeah, let's have another drink. And rationalises that. It can only happen if you don't know yourself. Mm. So the, the whole idea is, oh, is to know yourself. Because mm. you see all these books, don't you? And they go, do this, do that, go here, go there. This is the lesson. This is the plan. This is the seven steps. But who are they talking to? Mm. There's, there's 20 of me in here. The, the guy that hears it and in, inspired isn't the guy that's got to get up on Monday morning at five o'clock and start the meditation mm. or start the run. That's a different guy. He doesn't even know we've agreed to it. Mm. So maybe there's 20 or 30 or 40 or Gurdjieff believed there was hundreds of different personalities within each person. So we've got to identify which one is us, which is authentic, which is the, which is the true self. Once we've got that, he's the one that takes the instruction. He's the one that acts on the instruction. He's the one that takes sovereignty over the body, subjugates the, you know, the lower parts, what they call the animal soul, gets control of the palate, gets control of the eating, gets control of the need to gossip or the need to judge or the Mm. need to be envious or the need to accumulate. Get rid of all that stuff and just refine it so that when you're sat in a room, you throb with light. You know what I mean? You, people, when I say light as well, that there, there is, you have an understanding that people will feel it, will radiate. Mm. And if you can get that to a raw level, just being in a room with somebody will be healing for them. It will be inspirational for them. It'll be aspirational for them. And it will go out and it will do its work. They are, it's almost like just the act of speaking. You're releasing energy um, in Judaism, they, they believe you're actually releasing beings, but let's just say you're releasing energy that goes out and works. Mm. It's going out and it's working. This podcast is going to go out and it's going to talk to kids who are going, that's me. And it's not just trying to inspire them. It's saying to them, there's a place to start. Take your clothes off, look in the mirror. Where can I start? Mm. Can, how's, my, how's my palate? How's my food? What am I feeding? No, what am I eating? What am I feeding? Mm. What am I thinking? What am I, what am I taking in every single night on the news? You know, before breakfast, we've listened to 20 terrible stories, mm-hmm. you know, but so subjective, isn't it? So our energy is being looted before we even start. The wind is taken out of our wings before we even start. So it's this sense that, um, that we start to, when we start to understand who we are and when we start to search for who we are, 
teachers will come into our lives to guide us and and it's what they say the soul will teach you it will come and you will start getting lessons people will turn up in books um and they will start to um present themselves out of time and space and talk to you and give you instruction and, and give you direction but you still got to do it so it's okay to read a book but we can't exist on that you know we've still got to do it haven't we so that your word, and I think in um, in Hermetics they call it Heka. Your word is sound, and sound is magic. It's, they call it magic sound. Mm. In in Japanese Aikido they call it Kotodama Gaku, which is the use of magic sound. In Judaism they say the whole world and all the realities and all the densities are created by sound. All the letters for the alphabet changed into different uh, different words with different intentions and delivered it with different uh, intonations are what create your world. Mm. We know that because we've used sound to get us into depression. Mm -hmm. We've used sound to get us out of depression. We've used sound to, um, you know, to, to start a podcast. Um, and we've used sound to create 7 million listeners or to, you know, to put books out in 21 languages or use sound to, to, to raise £2 million to, to make a film. Mm. So we start to recognise that the authentic self understands these things. It wants to master sound, wants to take sound and do something with it, wants to put sound out there like an army of servants to talk to kids we, who we will never meet in our lifetime, but who are waking up at four in the morning in a cold sweat thinking there's no way out. There is, there is. And your inner voice will tell you there isn't and there's no point looking and the world is against you. But that's not true unless, of course, you believe it's true and then it is. So is the secret not, li not listening to yourself but also listening to yourself? The secret is to start to identify who you are. Was, uh, that, was that what you were able to do via the fear pyramid? Yeah, that like, was what the fear pyramid did. It sh the, the person climbing the pyramid and the person going, this is what I'm afraid of, was... was what you would call the silent observer, the witness. Mm. The one that was saying, I'm going to do something about this and observing when the fear rose up and I observed it but didn't engage it, that was who I was. So I started to strip away over a period of, over a long period of time, mm. I started to strip away all of the parts of me that weren't me. I'm not jealous, I'm not envious, I'm not uh, childish, I'm not violent, you know, I'm not greedy, you know, they're not me, but I had elements of that. I had elements of all of those. I'm not corrupt. I, but I had elements of those in me, which I was feeding every day um, because I'd never questioned them. But when I started to question them and when I started to ask them to qualify themselves as they rose up, I, I recognised they weren't who I was. And every time I dismissed and subjugated one of the elements that wasn't me, the part that was me expanded mm. and grew because it actually consumed that part. That part is occupying somewhere in my body it's mm. occupying part of my consciousness so I just gradually bit by bit started to reclaim the lost parts of myself until until I became more and more authentic mm. more and more kind more and more charitable more and more selfless and if something rose up in me that was selfish or unkind I would catch it very quickly and either expose it, I'd say to somebody, I apologise, I shouldn't have said that. Or if it was my wife, I'd say, I apologise, I fell out of alignment. And the, the act of noticing it brings it into light and says, that's a fraud, that's not who I am. And you, then you go, that from now on, I won't engage that. 
from now on I won't can you, I won't uh, I won't feed that when it rises up like the lion of law I won't engage it you made a conscious decision and obviously you you were on watch you were on patrol for yeah. any of that behavior but I'm thinking about listeners and I've been in this situation where I've been um I've been allowed to get away with bad behaviour perhaps yeah. because I had a good job title or because of whatever else it might have been. That's very honest. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's <laughs> well, a great starting point. <laughs> I mean, obviously, I'd, it, I'm on patrol too. Yeah. But I'm mindful that I think probably a lot of people might feel like that. Deep down, they might not say it out loud, but deep down they might think, I know I was a knob. Hmm. I know I spoke badly to that person. But I got away with it. Yeah. So is it about the ultimate sort of the, the bottom line coming down to you? Take, is it about taking ownership yeah. and not being on autopilot and just sort of going with yeah. the flow and, and driving? Don't take yes for an answer. But understand, understand the world you're in. Understand its laws. There is a chief law, which is the law of causation. That's definite. Mm -hmm. I have no doubt about that. I have vast experience. I am certain about causation, about cause and effect, about reciprocity. And once you get that, you automatically realise it's ignorant to be unkind to anybody because to be unkind to you, I have to, I have to process that through me. I have to process all of those negative chemicals through me before I can deliver them to you. And then I have to, I have to deal with the karma of that. The, you know the the reciprocal effect so what we do um automatically registers in us um even our skin will speak a testimony against us this is what it says in the quran it registers in us we bring it through as in energy and it's caustic it isn't just like i'm not just talking allegorically i'm talking physiologically you know the moment you start to um produce any kind of hate chemicals or judgment chemicals you know they they have a massive caustic effect on the internal smooth muscles like the heart mm -hmm. the lungs the intestines the brain cells it's cortisol particularly when you have any kind of negative feelings and it triggers the um the flight response you know the sympathetic nervous system it closes the immune system down so you when we are unkind to people, we are automatically, literally, physiologically, physically, um, psychologically, spiritually, sociologically unkind to ourselves. It makes no sense. But before, before you can do that, you have to acknowledge that that's a law and that's true. I know it is because I've not just that I've studied it and not that, not that I've just that I've scoured all of the Bibles and they all concur, but that I've lived it. I've watched myself do things that I think I can get away with and realise that's just a naive folly. You can't get away with anything because the moment you do it, it's registered in you. You are your own ledger. And at some point, if you want to um, work with any kind of repentance, which is what my life has been about, and repentance just means to return, it mm -hmm. means to return to the centre, um, then at some point you're going to have to dig up all the dead bodies of your karma to get back there. You, you have to, if you're going to retrace your, your steps back to the centre, you're going to have to go past all of those karmic things. They're all there. So karma is real. It's the only thing that's real. It's the law of this, um, this realm that we're in, the earth realm. And once we understand this, what people like Aurobindo um, and Siddhartha, they would say you can't even begin until you acknowledge and understand reciprocity karma's 
Calm is a word that puts people off, but reciprocity, mm. scientific reciprocity. The body works on scientific reciprocity. It's all of, this whole body is a, is, is a capitalist state. It's all about cause and effect. What I do returns. You know, what I say returns. What I think returns. I can think negative thoughts, and I, can, and, and I have, and talk myself into anger, hate. I can talk myself into illness. I can talk myself into illness to the point where I see it in, on an X-ray or mm. I see it in blood samples. We are so powerful. Mm. So we've got to understand reciprocity. It works from the, um, uh, from the very small to the very large, it works with everything. Once we understand that and we get excited about it, we go, oh, I see, so this is how it works. When I do something negative, I, I gain a discredit and that automatically comes back and I have to pay for that. But if I do a service and a charity, you know, I open the gates to heaven and that essence comes down. And the more charity I can perform, and what you're doing now is a charity. And, and I know, you know, everybody gets paid for stuff, but when you're doing something because you want to make a difference and you want to change people, that's a, a beautiful charitable act. So the reason I would imagine that you're getting such great feedback and such um, a great reciprocal response is because you're doing something that you know will help people and you want to help people because you've been there yourself. So once you start to understand karma, you can start to work karma. But we come back to the same question. Who is it that understands it? Who is it that's working it? And who is it in you that's trying to sabotage it? Because even at the level of sainthood, you know, um, people like St. Francis were still tripping up. You know, they were still making mistakes. Even at the level of sainthood, he was still saying, don't be in too much of a hurry to make me into a saint. I'm still capable of fathering a child. He was still capable of losing his temper. He was still capable of making mistakes. But he, he brought himself back to the centre very quickly because he recognised it. So we've got to understand reciprocity. And if, and if we don't understand it or if we don't believe it, then that's the first job. We've got to do the rigour. I know, I absolutely know. I mean, people will come to me with lots of stories where they can say... Um, they say karma doesn't work because this guy's got away with this and that guy's got away with that. But that's only first level rigor. You read my mind. Yeah, but it's just first level rigor though. You know, the guy in the corner, he's a millionaire and he lives in that house and he's a drug dealer. Don't talk to him about karma. He's got away with that. But people are looking at something in, in, uh, as it is at this moment in an in intermediary state. Mm. Um, they're looking at things in, in the intermediary as, as though they're reading a. Um, as though they're reading a paragraph from a thousand-page book and, and determining the whole book on that one paragraph. But the, but the paragraph will qualify itself over a thousand pages. Mm. So but if you look closer at the guy in the corner, he's six stone overweight, he's very unhealthy, he's very unhappy, he's lost all of his friends because they're all afraid of him because he's a big drug dealer. Um, his wife's on Valium. Um, the police are kicking his door down every two weeks. He can't wear the expensive watch that he's got because if people see it, they want to know where it's come from, the police in particular. He didn't drive the posh car he's got. He has to leave it two blocks away mm. because it, he can't qualify how he's got that. He's got people threatening to kill him all the time. On the surface, you go, he's got away with it. He's, he's, he's literally living on the ninth circle of hell. So it doesn't stand up to rigour. And, and also, like, over a period of time, I mean, that, that this particular guy I'm talking about is doing two life sentences at the moment for murder. So he went, he went from being a very respectable, charismatic guy into being this uh, fighter, then drug dealer, then murderer. And 
the way he's living now, really, you know, I, I have complete compassion for him because he's a he's a guy that's in a terrible state. But at the time, the amount of people that kept saying to me, "How you know? What about this guy? Then if karma works, but they don't do the rigor. People don't do the rigor. Mm. You've got to do the rigor. Just just dig a little bit deep. I'm I'm lucky in a way because I I lived a violent life for a long time, and I witnessed reciprocity in my own life, in my own body, in my own mind. I saw the I saw the re, the um, the reciprocal response or return from my own actions over a period of time, I've watched them. I've watched them come back. And, I, and I, my periods of repent, repentance have been so painful. They've been so painful. I've been on my knees, you know, been uh, in places of terror and places of extreme pain. Because, and this was because I willingly wanted to repent. And when I say repent, I mean I wanted to return to who I really was or I wanted to repair so the Buddhists would call it repair. Um, Christians will call it repent. Um, Judaism would call it uh, return. Mm -hmm. And Buddhists would call it um, refuge. So because, we're going back to the center. Because the fear pyramid yeah. was uh, about overcoming the fears, facing them. Yeah. And on the fear pyramid was the the work that ended up taking you into being a bouncer. Yes. So it was really came from a very positive place it came from a place of wanting to change for the better yeah and wanting to know yourself but then and correct me if i'm wrong but i read that after a period of time you realized that being in that violent environment made you dark yeah and made you a bully it's very true yeah you ended up saying i have to get away from this yeah i got I lost to be dark yeah, yeah. So you felt in in the pursuit of finding yourself. I lost myself again. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Nietzsche says, be careful when you hunt the dragon that you don't become the dragon. Mm. So it sneaked in the side door. I became arrogant. I became violent. Um, I was ignorant. I hadn't educated myself enough. I believed, I didn't understand reciprocity. I thought I was a tool of karma. I thought I was doing good work. I thought what I was doing was good. But when I started to really question myself, and it would happen because you... You'd be fighting a monster one night, and he's a monster. It's a proper monster. I've read, I've read the book. <laughs> you watch my back, yeah. yeah. But you'd be fighting him one night, and you think, yeah, I've done a good job there. And then two days later, you'd be walking down the street, and you'd see him with his wife and kids, and that monster was someone's daddy. Mm. He was a father. He was a, a husband. Yeah. And you realise you've battered somebody on a bad night. Who, someone's had a bad night, and, and, uh, and you start to really question what you're doing. You start to really question... You know, where's that monster gone? That was here two nights ago. So I, st I recognised I was losing my way. I was uh, using violence as a problem-solving tool. Mm -hmm. um, I was trying to rationalise it. I was trying to qualify it. But if I got in front of anybody intelligent, I saw how much they were afraid of me. Um, uh, and I recognised that that's not what I wanted in my life. So when I started to question that and go into it, it was quite scary to start standing in front of the truth because it meant letting go of all the armour I'd built up, letting go of all the tools that I'd created. Not all of them, because a lot of what I learnt on the door, I learnt to use in the greater jihad, in the internal, you know, the internal warfare is, is, is no different. Mm. You know, as a nightclub bouncer, I was guarding the door of a club. But as a metaphysician, as a shaman, I'm guarding the doorway of the heart. You know, and I'm, and I'm guarding against similar negative people, but they're on the inside, not on the outside. I recognised when I went on the door that all of these monsters were projections from my own mind. I created them, literally. I mean, you know, I created them, um, and then I created 
weapons and tools to defend myself against them. And I would say to my wife, isn't Coventry violent? Everywhere I go, there's violence. And she said to me one day, Jeff, there's a common denominator mm. here. Everywhere you go. And when I got this, and like I said, started to study and started to read, especially the Bibles, I went through the normal Waterstones front of shelf and then they led to the philosophers and the philosophers... You know, um, they led to the Bibles, and the Bibles were kind of like, what are you doing here? You should be going into you, look into you. So the Bibles encouraged me to develop an inner life. But you start to, you start to realise that all of the stuff I'd learnt I could use in an internal way, but you had to keep that centre line all the time. So I had to find out who the, who the violent person was, who the person was that was um, uh, qualifying that and justifying it, and whether it could be qualified and whether it could be justified. Society seemed to qualify and justify it quite a lot because politicians were sending people to war and in the macrocosm doing the same as what I was doing in the microcosm. But mm. from what I could gather looking at the politicians and looking at the people who were running the world, they, they weren't really people that I wanted to be like because a lot of them were full of corruption themselves. So I was just thinking I, I need to let go of all these influences and ask myself, how do I want to be? Part of it happened when I was with my second wife and she said to me one day, when you lose your temper and when you get like violent on the doors, I wasn't violent at home, but when you get violent, she said, you, you look ugly. And it jarred me. It, well, I was so jarred. And I said, well, I don't know what you mean. She said, that, I just don't recognise you. Mm. I don't know who you are. And it made me really start. I was, I was so insecure. I was a hair trigger. Any problem, I wanted to solve it physically. So I had to let go of all that. I had to let go of all that armour. I had to strip it all the way back. Um, it was a, what they call kenosis, like self-emptying. I had to get rid of it all over a period of time and start looking at who, I, who am I actually? Who, who am I really? What's my purpose here? And of course, when I stripped it right the way back, it was just about kindness. It was just about love. It was just about charity. It was just about this feeling of expansion you got when you give someone a pan for a cup of tea because you, because you looked at them and thought, that's my brother, or that's my sister, or that's my aunt, you know, when you recognised that this was a real person. I once saw consciousness fully expanded for the price of a quarter of a pizza. This is when I was starting to grow. I'd let go of the violence and I was sat in Leicester Square with my wife and I watched this guy trying to fill his belly from a rubbish bin in, in Leicester Square, a concrete rubbish bin, and I was overwhelmed with compassion. I mean, literally, I literally ran from the cafe. I left my wife. <laughs> I ran from the cafe and I just said to him, are you hungry? And he just looked at me like this and just nodded. And I said, do you want my pizza? And he took it off me. <sighs> And I just felt edified more than every book I'd ever read. I thought, this is all I want to do. This is, I felt everything. I felt the potential of everything. I felt the connection of everything. In that one moment, I felt everything. It was so powerful. And I recognised at that point that it wasn't him. It wasn't me feeding him. It was him feeding me. It was so powerful. Mm. Literally, in, in Judaism, they would call him a charity carrier. And they say that when you serve somebody who hasn't got anything they allow you to give charity and draw down from the divine they allow you to receive from the divine in order to give to them because mm. of course when you receive it 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 um fills you doesn't it it permeates every cell in your body before you deliver it so you get your your quota so it's this idea that 
I started to have lots of these things happening to me, but it all came back to the same thing. That's who I really am. And that's who I always was. Um, but I had to, in order to stay in that place, I had to get rid of all of the parts of me that I wasn't. And that was not that was the part that, you know, was, was sweeping the floor in the factory. That was the part that was watching pornography. That was the part that was overeating. That was the part that was slamming doors if my wife didn't want to, if, if she didn't want to have a cuddle with me, you know. Mm. Um, and that was the part of me that was, um, you know, quietly threatening to, towards everybody if mm. I felt that, that, that they, would encro- they were encroaching my space at all. So all of these things that were, that were, I thought were just part of being a man and part of my armour, I had to let go of all of it. I had to completely descale, can get rid of all of the armour until I was just this vulnerable... Um, I, mean, I, lost, I must have lost about, I don't know, about five stone, but I just came, I went through a point of being so vulnerable, you could have blown me over, you know, I was so vulnerable, and I had to build myself back up again. So it's this, this, this sense of stripping away until all you're left with is who you really are, and who, who you really are, all that person wants to do is be kind to everybody at every opportunity. Um, because first of all, because you feel great when you're doing it, and secondly, because you understand reciprocity. You understand this realm. You understand the nature of this realm. It's a living classroom. You know, it's a, it's a reciprocal habitat. It's a correlative, a correlative territory that will give you what you give out. It will, create, it will create and sculpt the exact reality of your fixed beliefs. It's, it's, this realm we're in is so powerful, but it's not really real. It's just, like, it's just like a classroom you go to in order to perfect. Once you get that, you go, well, how do I perfect? Mm-hmm. Well, you perfect through kindness. You perfect through charity. You perfect by, by um, converting all of the parts of you, reclaiming all of the parts of you that aren't in alignment with that. It's reminding me about a conversation I had with my brother, who is where I first heard about you, uh, not too long ago, in December, actually. Between Christmas and New Year, I could feel the fog of depression beginning to it was just it was just sort of knocking at the door yeah. and, you know like you know just in the distance and the way that it sometimes manifests with me is I get a little bit agoraphobic yeah and you just mentioned then about people encroaching on my space yeah so I mean that can be someone standing a little bit too close yeah. to me in the coffee yeah. shop all of it I'm I go on to red alert and that's not a nice place to be, but it's because I'm imagining everything and everyone as a threat and that the world is, Yeah. I have to be on red alert because someone's going to try and get at me. And my brother said, oh, well, Jeff Thompson's got a brilliant way of dealing with that. And I thought, excellent. It's going to be like, you know, kill a punch or something. <laughs> and he said, just when you, when you look at everybody, instead of thinking them as a, as a threat, say, I love you. Not yeah. out loud. In your head, yeah. Yeah. I sat in the tube one day just looking at everyone. This is my first epiphany. I was floating for two years. I was literally, nothing could touch me. And I was just looking at everyone going, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. I love them. I felt them. I, I was talking to a kid outside um, in Piccadilly one day, a young kid, and I looked at her. She was, she was just sleeping rough, and I went over and... and the, she must have been 17, 16, 17. It was heartbreaking. And I just said, are you OK? And she said, oh, you know, I'm cold. And I gave her my gloves. I put my, glo- my gloves on her hand. Um, and I gave her some money. And as I was talking to her, um, I saw my own daughter. I've got three daughters in this. And I, that I literally saw them. They were my, they were my kids. Mm. And then I realised they were everybody's kids. 
she was everybody's kids. I, I could just have this moment where I saw everybody through her. And I thought, how can I go to my stupid meeting when my child is on the street? How can I go to my meeting? I just had this moment where I recognised through this. When I talk about when you're charitable to somebody, it's edifying, it's, it's instructional, you are given truth. When I serve this kid from, from a place of pure compassion, I'm not trying to be a great bloke, I just thought I can't, I can't walk past her. I felt such compassion um, that when I gave her my gloves and put them on her hands and she looked at me, I had this instruction come down and showed me I was connected to everybody. And it showed me why I can't see that all the time as well, because I wouldn't be able to move. If I recognised that everybody was connected to me, that everybody was my son, everybody was my daughter, everybody was my uncle or my brother or my dad, everybody, everyone's connected to me, I wouldn't be able to exist in the world. So it just showed me that for a brief second. So that was more instructional than, you know, if I've read the Quran, I've read the Christian Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament, the Bhagavad Gita, the Bhagavatam, you know, the Mahabharata, all of these big, you know, posh, posturing books, you know, that I can say, hey, I've read them, Look, I'm pretty good, I'm, I'm well read. I learned more from, from giving this kid um, my gloves than I learned from all of those books. And that's what it's saying to me, you'll be edified more by one act of charity. And, but it's got to come from a place of compassion. So it's not like, I'll oh, take that off because mm. I feel a bit guilty. It's like actually taking time and going, you know, how can I go to work when my child is on the street? And then you go away and you think, you know, I've just walked past 30 people in London like that. How do I deal with that? I know how I deal with it. I go back into the centre and I reclaim everything, everything that isn't kind. Everything in me that isn't kind, anything in me that isn't, that is judgmental, anything in me that isn't in alignment with love, I'm going to reclaim. It's going to rise up, I'm going to wrestle with it, and I'm going to convert it. And that's the best kind of knowledge, that's the best kind of light. So I was edified by this one act of compassion, just edified by that, to, to be that person more and more. It doesn't mean I'm naive about the world, it doesn't mean I'm naive about the fact that, you know that there can be threats out there if I'm not in my centre game. Um, but it means that uh, I'm going to be instructed and guided more through charity, anonymous charity. I know I've, I know I'm, I know I've told you that story, but as a teacher, mm. I have a series of stories that I'm, I'm OK to tell because mm -hmm. otherwise I can't teach. So I use stories to tell. Um, the best ones should be anonymous. Mm. Nobody should know about it. It should just be what you do. But these tiny little things, it's not the big life experiences that really expanded me. It was, it's, the, it's the small anonymous acts of charity. It's mm. so powerful. And, and when I say it's edifying, I mean literally. You, you have this instruction that downloads into you instantly and you feel it. And it can, it can, it can affect you for the rest of your life because you just suddenly start thinking, that's all I want to do. That's all I want to do. I want to orchestrate my life so that... I'm either thinking, saying, or doing kind things. Um, and that's where, I mean, obviously, I'm a great teacher because I was a hugely violent guy and I did everything wrong. You know, if I was around in the time of Moses, there would probably have been an 11th commandment mm. <laughs> with my name on it. So I did everything wrong, but that makes me a good teacher. Mm. Miller Reaper was a murderer turned saint. People listened to him because he went from a negative life. He killed 35 people. He was a Buddhist saint and uh, was so um, 
uh, so upset by it that he, he said, I want to find enlightenment in one lifetime. And he went through this period of meditation and uh, kenosis in order to find that. St. Paul was the same. 17 of the books in the New Testament are written by St. Paul, but he was a guy that crucified Christians. Then he had this Damascus moment um, and felt the, the presence of Christ or the Christ energy and suddenly dedicated his life to love. But when you read his books, when you read Romans or Corinthians or Philippians, any of the books that he writes in the Bible, the, the language is so beautiful. It's so rich and rhythmic and it's, it's so on the money, so pragmatic. You know, this is a guy that made it work when he was in prison, when he was shipwrecked, when he was starving. He also made it work when he was in, in you know, through palatial times, when he had plenty to eat. So you start getting directed towards these people because you, because you one act of charity expands you and you're just suddenly aware that all of this stuff's here that I can go to and learn from. It's just, I mean, there's, there's so much. But it, it, again, I know we've got to keep it in context. Where do we start? You feel the darkness encroaching. You feel like closing yourself in, lean into the sharp edges. Get instruction. There is instruction. Mm. And if you, you know, you'll be led towards whatever is right for you. You know, everybody's an individual, everybody's different, but your intuition, this inner tutor, will say, have a look at there, or look at that book, or pick up that podcast. I mean, that's why podcasts are so so powerful at the mm. moment. All my, my kids go to the podcast all the time. They always tell me about, about you know, the podcasts mm. that are out there. So the, the podcasts and the people doing the podcasts are the new shamans. You know, these are, these are the modern epistles. These are the modern letters to the people saying this is what you can do, this is what's possible. You think there's no way out, but there is. So when these feelings come over you, rather than go with the old perception, which is I've got to run from this, because we know when we run it gets bigger, and we know when we run it gets darker, and we know when we hide it gets stronger. So lean into it. Lean into the sharp edges. Don't have a small courage. Go out there and just continue to do it. And it, it will continue to challenge you, but the idea then is that... This is a soul gymnasium for the sojourner, this place. So when uh, this difficult time comes along, it's, it's a weightlifting kit that's come through the post and I'm going to exercise my soul on it. And it's, uh, it'll, it, I would say it's probably the most difficult thing anyone will ever do, but we're living proof it's possible. And we've well, got to remain that, haven't we? Well, the thing is, as you said uh, a couple of minutes ago about... Um, going from one extreme to the other, murderer to yeah. saint. And your story perhaps stands out because um, if you, you know, do the little thing on paper, the little pricey, you're like, what, bouncer to this? What? <laughs> but I'm just, you know, for the ordinary person, for the normal person, and listeners, I am using air quotes there because none of you are ordinary or normal. Mm. But for the person whose boss might be a bit of a wanker and sends them emails on weekends, he's got that high maintenance friend or the partner who's giving them jip, like who's yeah. just living the, again, air quotes, normal life. Yeah. How, how can you begin to put this into practice? Because obviously your story is a story of an extreme mm. to a certain extent. And just the person who commutes every day, gets that same train, gets that same bus can they apply this? Because I feel mm. like, I remember you said, uh, you know, a lot of people are living lives they don't like, in houses they don't like, yeah. in jobs they don't like. Yeah. And I know people who have gone through that. I've I've gone through that too. Um, how, how does just the, 
somebody who's listening to this who isn't as well read as you who because ha- you've obviously evolved and absorbed so much information yeah. and also put it into practice if somebody's coming to you and they're in that state and maybe they feel paralyzed or they just say my life's not great or i'm angry at this or what is the starting point yeah well i would say what we said at the beginning i was that exactly the same person i was mm-hmm. working in a factory um doing shifts continental shifts um and one I had this dream of being a martial full-time martial artist I had this dream of being a writer more than anything but it just seemed impossible so I was a very ordinary person so you just start by looking and going what can I change and if my boss is sending me emails why am I allowing that if my husband is a wanker or my wife is a bully why am I allowing that why am I not acknowledging that why am I not seeing it you know if if um if I'm in the wrong house, driving the wrong car, with the wrong girl, why? Why am I allowing that? You've got to re-empower yourself. For me, the turning point was when I recognised it was me that was doing this. It wasn't my wife keeping me in a factory job. It wasn't society put, putting me down. It wasn't the, my schooling. That information is there. In eschatology, they say the information is there. Everything is there. It's yours. We just don't know it. It's all there. Everything you need to grow is there. So start with what you can change. If you don't like um, the way your boss is treating you, you've got, you've got the power to change jobs. You've got the power to change partners if you want to do that. Or if, if that's still too much, just by ch- start by changing the things you know you can change. Get control of your palate. So, and, and you know, start to get control of your food. Start to control what you eat and what you drink. Start to treat this this walking universe with the respect it deserves don't fill it full of shit mm. which people do every day they fill it full of shit and wonder why they're not running running around like a formula one car you know you've got to you've got to refine this vehicle this is your vehicle so mm. and the information you need is there so maybe just start again everyone's going to intuit it in their own way you've got to listen to what your intuition is saying where's it draw where's it drawing you i mean like for instance with you when you were depressed what was the first thing you did what was, where did you go? What, you know, when you said you were depressed, but now you're doing this fantastic podcast. What was the first thing you did to get yourself out of depression? What was your first step? Um, uh, probably going, uh, going to the doctor and saying, I really, I want therapy. I That's think I need to fantastic. see Fantastic. So you've, you've reached out. That was very scary to do. Mm. So the first thing to do is, is always scary because there'll be lots of parts of you saying, I don't want to go there. I don't want to do this. I don't, you know, there'll be lots mm. of fears encroaching. You're saying, don't do that. Because if you do that, you lose control. But actually, you're in a very dark place. So you've got to start being brave and you've got to start to do, the, even if it's just small things, even if it's just getting out of bed and going for a walk, start with that. You know, my depression was so severe. I was still managed to get to work, but I can't tell you how unhappy and how, mm. you know, how bad I was all the time. But I just, I disciplined myself and made myself do the things um, that I didn't want to do. So, all of these little things you can control, start with those. Start with the things, most people think that the palate um, and your daily habits, walking or swimming or running, they don't think it's going to make a difference. It makes a profound difference because just going out for a walk in the morning or just going out for a run or just eating a healthy diet is reclaiming parts of you uh, that have been taken over by melancholy, by mm. depression, you know, by judgment. And if you, you know, Stop, you know, stop feeding the, the parts of you that are negative. So don't watch the news four or five hours a day. Don't watch the soaps three or four hours a day. Don't read 
you know, the usual fare. You know, if you read the normal magazines and the normal newspapers, you want to slice your own throat by the end of the day. They're, they're, they are so negative. It, mm. It's mostly junk food. It's always um, coming from the negative and it's always subjective. There is lots of great news out there. There's lots of very empowering news. And I'm a good example because I've come from... I left school at 16 with no qualifications. Um, I was working in factory jobs um, and manual labour till I was 32. It was only when I did the fear pyramid um, that How old were you when I was, you did the fear I was probably early 20s, but oh, manically depressed. Mm. It was so frightening. But I just found this piece of courage and I just won. I just got one victory over the depression. And when I did that, I recognised I'd reclaimed something of myself. I got one victory. I reclaimed a part of myself, and it was something silly. My first, the first level of my fear pyramid was I was afraid of spiders, and if there was a spider in the corner of the room, I wouldn't sleep at night. So I was a black belt as well. I was a black belt. It was crazy, and I had this dissonance because I'm thinking, how can I be a black belt and still so be so afraid? So that the dissonance made it made me feel even worse. So that was my first fear. I picked up the spider. I put it down, I picked it up again, I put it down, I picked it up again, and I kept doing that until I was no longer afraid of spiders. So I'd reclaimed a part of myself. What room did that, if that was taking up space, Yeah. what room, what filled that room that was left? Consciousness, knowledge. So I suddenly, I suddenly had a reference point. Right. Oh, that thing, that, that thing that stopped me from sleeping, I've overcome it and... I, if I can do that with if I can do that with that, I can do it with the dentist. I was afraid of dentists, so I went to the dentist, and I, you know, I filled in the form, and it says, "What's your job?" And I put buccaneer, and it said, "How long since you've been to the dentist?" And I said, "Ages." And when I went in, the dentist was laughing. So you're a buccaneer, are you? Don't get many of them round here. Um, so I'd reclaimed another part of myself. So each time I overcame a fear, I got stronger, a bit stronger, a bit more knowledge, a bit more skill. Some of the fears, at the moment I approached them, they disappeared. Others I had to wrestle with a bit more. Sometimes I would confront a fear and remove it and find that underneath it there was a deeper fear, you know, and then I'd go, okay, that's another fear I'll look at. And so I started to stand up to all of the things in my life. And each time, you know, a bit like weight training, each time I was able to put another disc on the bar and get a bit stronger. So eventually I went from being frightened of a spider in the bath to standing on a nightclub door um, facing down people that were threatening to kill me. Um, and then, you know, the great thing was I wanted to be a writer. I mean, now being a writer didn't seem as scary as, um, you know, facing a maniac on the door. <laughs> I remember working with a woman called Karen Manderback, an amazing American film producer, television producer. She said to me, Jeff, television's tough. It's very tough. And I said, in my last job, people tried to kill me. I said, I'm presuming it's no tougher than that. And she said, no, it's, it isn't that tough. <laughs> but it does feel that tough. Right. So I'd, I, had, I had reference points. Mm -hmm. Every, if you can overcome one thing, if it's just getting out of bed, when everything inside you says, I don't want to get out of bed, that's a start. You've defeated it once. You've reclaimed a part of yourself. There is an opportunity with depression and there's an opportunity with fear. There's an opportunity with ignorance or dissonance. There's an opportunity for us to reclaim the parts that are depressed, the parts that are fearful, the parts that are dissonant, the parts that are envious, greedy, the parts that have judgments. Challenge them. These judgments and these perceptions, you know, they, they, they place a parameter around our life and it's not a big parameter. 
you know. So we can reclaim those parts. I don't have to sit and wait for a politician to give me permission to live the life I want to live. I don't have to wait for the government to do that. I don't have to wait, you know, I, I don't have to wait for anybody. I don't have to wait for anything. I don't have to wait for a university grant to educate myself. There is so much information out there now. And you'd be amazed if you turn towards learning, just turn towards it, the learning will run towards you. This higher part of you, wants it wants to grow it wants you to learn it wants you to understand so the moment you turn towards um growth and development uh, it will turn towards you it's a living force it's a living entity so the information is there i, I remember picking up uh, a a leaflet in edinburgh when i was depressed um and it was just a, like a, a four pages from the bag of the gita I didn't even know what it was. It was just pictures of blue people on the front because Krishna is blue. And I remember thinking, yeah, I'm never going to read that. And, but I was so depressed. I thought I'll, I was so in such a turmoil at the time. I thought I'll read it. And I thought, this is really interesting. It's talking about self-sovereignty. It's saying forget about what they say. Forget about what they do. Don't try and control them. Just get the sovereignty over yourself. I thought, well, that's, that's more local. I can try that. I read this leaflet and I, th and I looked at the back. It said, this is an extract from the Bhagavad Gita, which is from the Hindu canon. So I thought, well, I'll get the Gita. It's a big, huge book. And I thought, I'm never going to get through that. I'm never going to read that. I sat and read it and it was an amazing book, all about man's battle with perception. And it's all done through the allegory of Lord Krishna going into battle to win his kingdom back. But it's an allegorical tale about the battle with perception. So I read that and felt very proud of myself. And he said, this is one chapter from the Mahabharata. And I'm going, oh, I thought this was the tome. <laughs> so I buy the Mahabharata and I read it on holiday. And it takes me two weeks full time to read it. My eyes are nearly bleeding. And I get to the end of the Mahabharata and it says, uh, you know, this is just one chapter of the Srimad Bhagavatam. And I'm going, oh, God. And so I said to my kids, look, and they said, what do you want for Christmas? I said, would you mind joining together and getting me the Srimad Bhagavatam? The Srimad Bhagavatam is the, what they say, it's the, um, it's the fruit of the Vedas, you know, the, the whole Vedas, you know, the Upanishads and all that. So it's 15 books. So I took some time off work and I read full time and I got through the whole lot. And at the end it said, this is a section from the 500,000 verses of the Vedas. And what it was saying to me was, there is as much as you want. Right. As much as you want. There is no limit to your potential to grow. There's no limit to your ability to learn. The moment I got the bag of a tan, do you know what happened? I was noticed. A friend of mine who I ordered it through said, oh, our, uh, our, our priest, our, uh, our guru has... As said, you know, most 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 Hindus probably haven't read the Gita, let alone the Bhagavatam. Who said he wants to meet you, he wants to talk to you. So I attracted a teacher, sat with him, and it was like he read my mind. He told me two things about myself, two things that I knew but I hadn't done, and I I I implemented them that day. And he gave me a contact uh, to. Um, a temple in London, which I started to go to, and they edified me more, they taught me more, they led me on to the Yoga Vasishta and lots of other books. So the the pamphlet led to the book, led to the tome, mm. led to the to the you know to the study, led to a teacher. A teacher put me in to um, you know into a community, and suddenly I'm in a community, and you know and and I'm learning a lot from that. 
But of the 500,000 verses of the Gita, every one of them says, this is your problem. It's unassailable. You can't fix it. Surrender to me. Turn to me. In other words, come back to the center. In our very center, in our very core, within us, there is a center. The Buddhists call it the void. Christians call it the kingdom. Um, uh, in Judaism, they call it the place of return. It's got lots of names, but it's just a still point, um, which is our authentic self, which is where we connect our, our very source. The answers to everything are there. So as obviously, allegorically, it will be talked about in terms of a person or a godhead or a personality like Christ or Muhammad or, um, you know, uh, Krishna or, or uh, Guru Nanak or whatever. But it's basically saying, return to your own centre, which is in you. And once you get there, there is a divine satnav that says, oh, this is Jeff Thompson. This is where he is. This is where he would like to be. This is his potential within this incarnation. This is his first instruction. And you suddenly got this divine satnav that says, move forward, stand still, move to the left, move to the right, uh, push, yield, mm -hmm. give you all the, even down to the minutiae, gives you the instruction. That's in you, that's in everybody. And it's individual to everybody. So you align to your authentic self in the very centre. Everybody has that potential. And if you're out there now listening to this and you feel depressed or fearful, you are being called. It isn't a bad thing. I know it, I don't want to patronise people because I know it can be terrifying, but it's a calling. It's not a harbinger of doom unless you want it to be. It's just a messenger of hope. It's saying you are not fulfilling your potential. What is it in your life that you can change? What can you change today? You can change it. What if you're scared of change? You've even said about, um, what if I write a book and it's successful? Success would mean change. Yeah. And that's scary. So what I do is I say to me, who is it that's scared? Who is the small self that's scared? When you said to me earlier on, um, yeah, I was afraid of this and I was afraid of that, I'm thinking, well, who's afraid? The moment that voice comes up and says, I'm afraid, you go, well, who is that? Notice that part of you. It's like what Eckhart Tolle would call a pain body. It's a shadow self. It's the part of you that feels afraid of everything. And if you listen to that part, it will shrink your life down to a kitchen. My, my brother was a very entrepreneurial guy and he, he allowed his fear to shrink him to a kitchen where he sat and drank sherry until he died and he was a beautiful man but his life shrank because he listened to fear this is what my brother left me when he died his life shrank to a kitchen stool in a, in a kitchen a small kitchen in a tower block full of empty sherry bottles and, and um, rum bottles and my brother imploded um, because he listened to fear. He didn't die from alcoholism. He was an alcoholic. He died because of denial. He denied because he listened to fear. And when my brother died, it was very traumatic. That's what I asked myself. What is my brother teaching me? He's saying to me, don't listen to fear. There's only one thing to fear, and that's the fear of falling out of alignment with your own source. So we start to look at things and go, well, I already know if I listen to fear, I'm going to shrink. So when fear comes up, I'm not going to see it as a messenger of doom. I'm going to see it as a harbinger of hope. I'm going to lean into it. I'm going to lean into those sharp edges and I'm going to find books and teachers that will help me to do it. And I'm going to do the work. I'm not just going to read the book and go, I feel better for an hour. I'm going to do the work. And even if I just change one little part of my life today, just one part, I've reclaimed that part. Just one part. Mm. So, but we've all got that potential. Everybody's got that potential. Society in general will, will make you think that you haven't. 
that it's pretentious to think you've got that, that it's folly, but actually everybody has that potential. And the reason I know that is because I was in those environments um, and for a long, long time, um, and I can't, I can't tell you, when I leaned into the sharp edges and broke the barriers and broke through and expanded, the teachers that arrived, the books that arrived. Mm. At my top game, books would just arrive in the post anonymously. thought you might like to read this. Teachers would arrive. The people I was mentoring were my teachers. They were talking to me. Everybody was a teacher, you know, even, you know, what it says in the, in the um, Old Testament, um, the, the timber in the wood will throw a question, the concrete on the floor will answer. Even inanimate objects will, you know, you'll be able to communicate with everything because consciousness is in everything. You recognise mm. that the teaching and the learning is there. It's all there. Everything will help you to grow. But you start with... You start with what's right in front of you right now. What can I change? What don't I like? What small thing can I change today? And the books that are going to inform you about how to grow are out there, but they won't do anything if you don't do the work. I want to come back to the books that are out there because there's something I really want to pick up on. But you said something a minute ago about um, the world gets very small. Yeah. And because I was in December, because I was feeling that fear coming back yeah edging back into my life I realized I'd made my life very very small again Mm. only talking to a handful of people not going out and always there being a reason to say no to something yeah so leaning into the sharp edges from January the 1st just because it just happened to happen at the end of December I don't believe in Mondays and 1st for starting things just start now but I just I, I said yes to everything and I started saying to people who I hadn't seen who in my head I'd written this story of oh, I haven't seen them in ages. They probably think I'm a knob. Yeah. If I ask them to go for a coffee, they'll say no because they don't want to hang out with yeah. me. All of that. I yeah. just, I don't care. Yeah. I'm just going to ask people out to meet me for coffee. I'm going to say yes to everything. And there are two things. A, obviously that makes life richer and brighter when you're out, but people make life richer yeah. and brighter. Yeah, it's very true. That's very I've true. I've really felt that this last Yeah, month it's absolutely true. And, and there, are, there are periods of hibernation. There are mm. periods of running away. And, and sometimes they're important. There are periods of sabbatical. I've just had a four-year sabbatical because um, I needed to go through a cleansing. I needed to go through a, a refilling. And that's when I've done this book that I've just written and this, uh, this other book that I've just finished. And, uh, Is that some... because not to... In... Sorry to interrupt, but... Is that because... The work that you do in the teaching is draining to a certain point. Yeah, it, well, I was I had an, I had I was working at the National on a play. I was was workshopping in a play, and I just had this moment of clarity, had this epiphany. I have a, I have them quite often, and it just said, get rid of everything now and just do this, just go for this feeling. So I saw, I had an apartment in London which we sold. Um, I've got a house in Coventry that my mum lives in that we paid off, and I brought I, I reduced everything to a minimum so I could have four years off, mm. just just to study, just to write, just studying and writing. And at that period, I came off all social media. I did everything that was taking any energy, and I put all my energy just into the work, just that. And now I'm gradually expanding back out again, which has been difficult because it's. You know, because I have had a period period of uh, being reclusive. Does everything seem very loud and bright? Yeah, very loud, very bright, uh, very scary again. Mm. Um, but I, I end, I've got great reference points, and I use the reference points. I work on. Uh, I have a covenant. I have a divine covenant with my highest self, or with God, or whatever you want to call it. Um, and He guides me, and I go where He guides me. And whether it's scary or not, it doesn't really make any difference. I just turn up. That's my. I follow that. 
Um, I don't need to know where it is. I don't need to know why. I don't need to know where it's going to go. Uh, I just need to f follow it as an intuition. So at the end, I'm not, you know, the, you do go periods. I went through periods of doing everything, saying yes to everything, going everywhere, being everything for everybody. Um, and now I just listen to my intuition. My intuition will say, you serve, sometimes you serve people just as well by saying no. If, it's, if that's what's called for, sometimes you have to say yes. It's always, the good stuff is always a bit uncomfortable. It always asks a bit more of you than you've got. And that's how you expand. And through those, through those, through accepting those commandments that, and accepting these little things you need to do, you expand again, you grow again. Every time you do, every time you follow a commandment or you follow an intuition, if that's a better word, um, you reclaim a part of you because something will rise up to resist it and go, I don't want to do that. Uh, you override that, that part gets consumed in the act of endeavour. That gets mm -hmm. consumed in the act of doing what you need to do. So you get to the point where you have a covenant with your highest good and you think, I, I know what I'm meant to do. I know what it is and I'm going to go out and do it. And if anything rises up in me that's fearful, um, then I'll do what I've always do. I will consume it in the process of doing it. That will be part of the ingredient. What about other people's opinions? And... I say this because I feel like I know where you're gonna where you're going yeah. to go, but I think for a long time in my life it was other people's opinions yeah. that uh, have really affected my decision making. And so I so any so I wasn't happy in life because I was making decisions based on what I thought other people thought I should do. Therefore, yeah. it wasn't authentic. Yeah, well, you got to, it comes back to the same thing with me all the time. Who are you? Mm. And when 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 you have a when you have an alignment with yourself. You automatically connect to your authentic self or your, to your intuitive self, your inner tutor. That's the only opinion I care about. It's not that I can't say that I'm never affected by what people say. Of course I am. Mm -hmm. But it, it makes no difference to me. My job isn't to please you or to please my publisher. Mm -hmm. uh, my job isn't to please my wife. My job isn't to please anybody. My job is to please God. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm using the word God because I can't really think of a better word, but if you want to call it your inner tutor, your highest good, I'm following that. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm getting rid of everything in my life that isn't that. So I'm just sitting on the one thing I know I can do. So I draw all my stuff down through the writing. I put the writing out into the world. And then I, if people ask me to, I will come and talk about it and try and pass on what I'm learning so that even if somebody just gets one piece from this and it gives them access and intercession and directs them, then that's good. So when you get this covenant with your highest self, what other people think won't matter anymore. Mm. It's not that it's not there, because it's very difficult to not care about what your wife thinks when she's with you 24 hours a day, or what your mother thinks when your mum doesn't want you to write about your brother's alcoholism, um, or you know what your friends think when they don't like your raw honesty about martial arts, or the, your raw honesty about... People wearing, you know, how, we all, how people wear masks and how you can see that, you know. They don't want you to be really honest. They, people don't want honesty. They don't want truth. So you have to not, you have to disregard what they think. If I worried about what people think, I'd still be working in the factory. I'd still be there because even the people in the factory were saying, what do you want to leave here for? Who do you think you are? What do you, who do you think you are anyway? You know, this is a, this is a job for life. You know, that was, that was what mm, I was worried about. Yeah. Drop, jobs like this don't grow on trees, you know, and all that. <laughs> they kept me there for so long. So you have to start thinking, what do I think? And if a part rises up in you and says, and starts to 
to worry too much about what people think. You have to ask yourself, who is that? Sometimes people are very good because they will trigger a part of you that's not you. So rather than go, I worried about this and I feared that, you go, who worried about that? Who feared that? Who was it? What part of me? Have you, I don't know if you've read Eckhart Tolle's book, The Power of Now. Yes and no. Well, <laughs> Parts of. Well, that, that book is probably the, the best book in the world at the moment for this technique, un, unequivocally. It is, the, it is the book in the world at the moment for this technique of um, uh, dissolving um, old shadows, old scripts, pain bodies, reclaiming parts of yourself. Mm. It is the most authentic book in the world. He's probably the most authentic teacher in the world at the moment as well. There's more to it, of course. And he's offering an entry level into, he's offering an entry level into a whole world of metaphysics. But his technique um, as heritage, has lineage, you know, if you go right back 5,000 years to, you know, to the beginning of the written Bibles, you know, and the esoteric versions of it, like say if you look at the Torah, the Old Testament, and then you look at the um, the Zohar or the Kabbalah and the Zohar, which is like the exegesis or the explanation of the Torah, um, Eckhart Tolle's technique is there. The, I'm talking about books that, you know, the deepest, deepest books you can get mm. on, uh, on esoteric practice, his technique is in there. But he's brought it to a level where it's, where it's so simple. It's so, he explains it so well. So I would say anybody out there who's struggling with any inner conflict, have a look at that book. Mm. Have a look at The Power of Now. Even better, if you can, listen to, listen to the audio version of it mm. because it comes across really well. And then he does a couple of other books and he does workshops. He puts a lot online free. And everything he does, it's all in, it's all in the practice, of course. And, you know... The, the, the thing that people don't say is that to master this, you have to get to a really high level. You have to be able to dedicate your life to practicing it. So it's not just a matter of reading the book and going, I've got it. You've got to practice it every day. You've got to dedicate your life to it. Mm. Um, same, same with self-defense. People used to go, show me a move. And I'd go, well, I'm an eighth dam. Um, and, it, and it takes everything I've got to be able to make this work in the street because it takes tremendous courage. Mm. And unless you dedicate your life to it, it's unlikely to help you unless I teach you just about awareness and avoidance. But this stuff, the esoteric stuff, is exactly the same. You've got to dedicate your life to it. So what it's all asking you is, who am I? Who am I? That's what Eckhart Tolle's book's asking. That's what the notes from a factory floor is asking. I've got another book here that that's I'll give you before you go. Yeah, it's um, it's yeah, that's the new book I've just done. It's um, but they're saying, who are you? You know, not why do I feel like this and why is that happening? Who is it that's saying what? Who who is it that feels like that? You've got to identify these different personalities and come back to the authentic self. The best way to find it is through uh, consistent meditation. Uh, yoga is very good. Uh, qigong, tai, tai chi. These are very good ways of um, oxygenating the body, bringing breath into the body and identifying the authentic self, yoking the body and the mind and the soul, bringing it back into alignment. So something like meditation is really good. Even just going for a run is very good because it oxygenates the body. It reclaims the part of you that doesn't want to run, it reclaims it. The part of you that doesn't want to sit and meditate, it reclaims it. It reclaims that spot taken up by it, so... There's a lot of information out there, um, and, and it's um, 
It's finding what, having a look at in your life. Now, probably I'm talking to some people who are going to go, oh, I've got Eckhart Tolle's book on the side and I've never read it. So that's a calling. Or I've, um, or I've, yeah, I looked at meditation. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I nearly did that last year. That's the calling. Mm. Or I did, I was going to do a diet. I was going to, not a diet, but I was going to start looking at my food. Mm. You know, you, you could go out there now. People, I've seen people do this from a prison cell. I had a, had a guy writing to me from prison who became a, one of the leading athletes in the world. You're talking about John McAvoy. Yeah, John yes. McAvoy, yeah. He's the from third a, person. He's the third from reason. A, from a prison cell. Yeah. It's a massive inspiration. It's, everything's possible, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. That's you interviewed him, didn't you? No, I've been. I'm trying. Oh, are I'm you? Trying. I'm well, trying. hopefully he'll listen to this because I think he, the one of the guys I was training at the time, one of my students, one of my teachers, was one of the prison wardens that was looking after him, oh. and uh, he gave him a couple of my books, and he wrote some nice things in his book about my about book. The formula. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and the formula, of course, came after I had a massive epiphany. And what does the formula say? The secret to perpetual motion is selfless service. But we come back to the same thing again. Who is it that's going to selflessly serve? Mm. Who is it that doesn't want to serve? Who is it that doesn't believe in service? Who is it that's scared to not have? Find the part of you that want, that can selflessly serve mm. and you'll identify the parts of you that you're not. I know it sounds complicated, but again, Eckhart Tolle's book, The Power of Now, is very, very good for explaining mm. this, uh, this concept of who am I? Because all of these parts that rise up are old scripts, you know, they're ghosts from the past, you know, they're scars from previous relationships, they're cultural fears, you know. It's not surprising when you look at, you know, the, the newspapers, the television, the soaps, they are, they are, they are full of uh, doom and gloom every single day and we are ingesting that, we're mm. eating that with our eyes. Those stories become flesh. Mm. I think it was mahali um, chicks and mahali that said the brain can only process so many units of information at a time i mean if if your units are taken up with um five hours of soaps on the telly and three hours of watching the news every day and two hours of listening to the gossip at work and an hour listening to your mum who's afraid of everything uh, or or you know 24 hours with a partner um who who kind of um whose view is completely diametrically opposed to yours, mm. your, reality is, your, your reality is based on the information you take in every day. So if, you're, if all that information is negative, of course your reality is going to be negative. It's going to sculpt the shape of your fixed beliefs. Mm. But we can change our fixed beliefs. But the, 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 the reason this is difficult is because when you suddenly go, yeah, well, I'm not going to 
do those negative things. I'm not going to gossip. When I give up alcohol, for instance, I gave it up as an esoteric exercise in hardiness. That was all it was. I probably lost 75% of my uh, social circle because I didn't drink anymore. Um, and then I would be standing with someone trying to have a Coke and my best friend uh, would come in and he'd be my best friend and three drinks later and he was just a complete stranger. I had no idea who he was. But of course, when I used to drink, we would be strangers together. Mm. So it will, it will affect everything you do when you start to make changes, when you start to improve yourself, even if you just stop gossiping. Because mm. obviously gossip is, is assassination. We assassinate people's character. You know, it's, it's, it's very subtle levels of violence. Um, but try and stop doing it. Try and stop doing it. Try not to get in, pulled into a, um, even a rationalised gossip with friends mm. um, and see how, how many friends you lose and how quickly people think that you're above yourself because you won't do it. But when you understand reciprocity, when mm. you understand the laws, you won't go near that stuff. You just won't go near it because it's so caustic. But you will lose friends because of it. But you will also gain friends in other areas. Well, I was going to, I was going to ask you about when one changes, when, I mean, when I'm talking to you, I feel like it's an evolution. So when one evolves, yeah, naturally the things that you were attracting might fall away and then you will attract something new. But when that's people, particularly yeah. loved ones, that's difficult, mm. but it is going to be one of the side effects for change. Absolutely. Yeah, not? absolutely. Yeah. It's very insightful. And it's the reason why most people don't do it because the, you know, you suddenly become a stranger to them. They have no idea who you are. You're not, you're not, remember when you, when you intercourse with people, when you dialogue with people, when you interact with people, you are exchanging energy. It's a reciprocal exchange of energy. That's what we do. When you suddenly say, I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to be unkind about that person because I know it's caustic to me and it's, and it's uh, destructive to them. You're suddenly not exchanging energy anymore. They normally feed off you and you feed off them. So there is a, there is a feeding. Mm. There is a friend, especially if there's a few people, there's a, freedom of, a feeding of energy or a, or a frenzy of feeding. When you suddenly say, um, someone says, oh, so-and-so, he's, he's horrible, isn't he? You suddenly go, you know, I, I don't know him. Or I love I actually found him okay. He's been kind to me. Or, you know, he's not here, so I don't really want to talk about him. Mm. Um, certainly you're not exchanging energy with them anymore. And then that's your fault. And you've got above yourself and you think you're something. And all of those normal accusations were basically what you're saying is I'm not, I'm not going to exchange energy with you anymore. And that's why it's difficult. But I will exchange energy, energy with you, but on a different level, mm. in a different way. So then the energy exchange is like this, what we're doing now. So we would, this, this would be... Um, uh, an, an exchange of energy, an intercourse of energy at the highest level we can find because it's just about love, it's about kindness and it's about serving. Mm. You know, we're not, neither of us here to make millions of pounds. We're here because we both genuinely feel that this is going to, this, this is going to um, bring somebody balm at the least, save someone's life at the best. If it hits at the right time, it can be life-saving if you say the right mm. things to people. So, when they realise they're not alone, that you know that it's not just them, and that there is information. So yeah, you will. You you know you'll lose a lot of people. Sharon always, my wife Sharon always says, all of your friends are dead. All of your friends are like they come out of books. They're they're incorporeal. But I said that doesn't make them any less real. 
you know, I, I got, I had Hetty, when I was writing my book, I had Hetty Hillison sat with me every day. She was a Dutch Jewess who wrote her letters from uh, Auschwitz in uh, 1943, and she was with me every single day. She died in the camps, but she was with me in her book, in her notes, every day when I was writing my books, every single day. She was a presence in my life. She's, she's came out of the book, out of time and space, and she sat with me, and there's mentions of her... Um, I've got two books coming out at the moment, so I'm just trying to think which one she's in. But she's in Notes, and she's in this new one I've just done as well, which is coming out in July. But so you find other teachers, you find other people, and you realise eventually that whether people are corporeal in a physical body or whether they come to you through books or through intuitions, it doesn't really make any difference. It's all the same. My teachers don't have to be sat in front of me, mm. you know. I mean, when my kids because my kids were starting to get really interested in this I really encouraged them to read all the lots of the books I've read and my my oldest daughter and my daughter-in-law actually went over and spent a week with Eckhart Tolle they manifested him they were with him in the room um so they brought him to life they actually brought you know they got the books but they went and sat with him and and they just broke all of these boundaries because these are just two ordinary kids, you know. They broke all of these boundaries and suddenly they sat with one of the greatest mystics of his generation. That's possible. My other daughter went through a marriage breakdown. She uh, went through a depression and I introduced her to Mother Mira, who I'd only ever encountered through her books and through through those teachings. So, But for me, she's real anyway. Mm. You know, I don't have to physically see her, but... Um, Three months ago, her and uh, my other two daughters and my daughter-in-law, five of them, four, five of them, four of them, uh, went over and sat with Mother Mira. They sat with her. And again, she is one of the... She's at the level of... Um, well, she's, one of the, she's one of the greatest prophets anyway, of, again, of her generation, but she's one of the few that are left, you know, proper mystics. Mm. And again, you can go and sit with her. She's very beautiful. She's very real. She came to me in a very real way through a couple of serendipities. But what I'm trying to say is my daughter thinks that she can't change her life. Suddenly she's in Germany, sat with Mother Mira. Suddenly she's creating all of this new stuff in her life. She's, her boundaries are expanding at an exponential rate because she's realised that she can do that. But she's had, to, she's had to convert the parts of her that didn't want to do it, the self-pitying parts, the parts that think she's thick the parts that think she's just a working-class kid, the parts that think she's not intelligent, the part that thinks she's not attractive. She's had to convert all those. She's had to reclaim all those parts. And that's an internal job. Mm. But she's doing it, and, she, and I say to her, look, there's a reference point. You just sat with Mother Mira. You've sat with her. Or you've just sat with Eckhart Tolle. You've spent a week with him. Mm. That is a reference point. Don't tell me that things aren't possible. I mean, you only have to go out at night... I mean, you said it when we came here. God, this place we're in, mm. Coombe Abbey, it's so beautiful. Mm. But where was this place yesterday? We've manifested it. We've brought it together. Why don't people do this every day? They can, can't they? Mm. They can do this, this, this beautiful building, this park. You know, this is possible. We can make this a, a more and more a part of our life, you know. But to do that, we have to convert all the parts of us that don't think it's possible. Mm. We have, and the part that converts it is the part that's the real you, not the part that goes, I'm afraid to do this. Who's afraid? Not the part that says that's not possible. Who thinks it's not possible? Mm. You know. So it's all possible, but it's, but it's very, very pragmatic. If this 
if this stuff doesn't work with your finances, if it doesn't work with your health, if it doesn't work with your relationships, of what use is it? We've got to be able to make it work in our life, haven't we? Mm. And that's the key. It's coming back to yourself and going, okay, I haven't got much control over what those politicians are doing or what those bankers are doing or, or what those terrorists are doing, but I have got complete control over what I do. Mm. I can determine what I put in my body. I can determine what leaves my mouth. If you've seen some of the things and felt some of the things that I felt, which I won't go into, you would never talk badly about anybody again. Uh, you would never allow yourself to entertain thoughts of anger or hate about anybody or judgment. You just wouldn't let yourself go there because it's so caustic and it's so spiritually, it's so damaging. You just wouldn't go there. I, I have had profound proofs of the caustic nature of that, and, and, but also the creative and abundant nature of um, kindness. This whole world is, is, a, is an act of kindness. So once you start to understand those rules, and again, this idea of um, reciprocity, which I mentioned earlier, karma, once you get that, once you grasp it, and that might take a bit of rigor, might take a little bit of research, but once you get it, you suddenly become aware that you have, you have the ability to determine your fate within this world. You have the ability to connect to a divine satnav that will direct every step of the way for you. That might take you the rest of your life, but, you know, that's worth getting up for in the morning. And then all of the things that we're worried about and all of the negative things that come into our life, they can all be converted. Mm. That's all raw material. It's all grist for the mill. Conversion. Conversion is yeah. the key. It brings me really neatly to, to a theme I wanted to explore with you, which is um, forgiveness. Yeah. Uh, because... I think one of the things I worked through with my therapist was holding on to a lot of anger and yeah. with particular people. And actually the greatest gift you can give yourself is letting it go. So powerful. Yeah, mm. it's so powerful. And we have this idea that if we don't hold on to it and if we don't, if we don't see reciprocity, we have this idea that if we don't see, if we don't enact vengeance and revenge, it won't get done. Mm. But believe me, once you understand reciprocity, you recognise that everybody's karma unfolds with or without your, with, with or without your attention. It will happen anyway. Mm. Things will just unfold. That's just basic cause and effect. We don't have to concern ourselves about that. We don't have to see it. What I realised when I, I forgave a guy that sexually abused me what that unfolded for me, once I did it, I forgave him, I shook his hand and I told him I forgave him and it released me, it freed me. Um, but I realised after that as well that it was a quiet conceit because beneath that I recognised how many things I'd done wrong that I needed forgiving for. So many things, more than I could ever remember. And I recognised that while I was distracted, being angry with him and, and, and uh, you know, um, building my body into an armory so I could protect myself against him. While I was busy doing that, I wasn't having to look at all the things I'd done wrong, and I'd done so many things wrong. Some of them were just out of ignorance. Some of them would, you know, some of them, you know, especially in my time as a bouncer when I was physically violent. I had so many things I needed to be forgiven for, and I didn't see them until I forgave this guy. So the gift that I was given was, you've forgiven this guy, and, and I'm going to show you now all the things you need to be forgiven for, so you can start working on them because when you work on them, you will get a clear view. And that's what I'm looking for, a clear view. And there were so many things. There was too many things to be forgiven for. All I needed to do then was acknowledge them, look at them. They came up through my training. Um, repent, which means, you know, no longer do them, no longer do the negative things and return 
to... It's like the 12 steps where you... Basically, yeah. this, yeah, almost identical to that, yeah. Yeah, the 12 steps is very, very powerful. So it's, um, yeah, I realised uh, how many things I needed to be forgiven for, and I recognised that what God was saying to me was that I can be forgiven only to the level that I'm able to forgive others. That encourages you to forgive others. But also it's saying, look, you know, that window there is just full of shit. It's blocked. You can't see the view. When you forgive people, you're just cleaning the windows. That's what you're doing. You're not doing it for them. You're not doing it for anybody else. You're not doing it against anybody else. You're not letting anybody off. We haven't got the power to let people off. How can we let people off? We haven't got control of universal reciprocity. We haven't got that control. All we can do is clean the windows. And when you start to clean their stain that they've left on you, it's not just that you're cleaning it, you're also converting it. You're also reclaiming the part. If someone's injured you, um, um, they, they have taken over and inhabited a part of you. Your thought, your psyche, they're determining your whole life. They're determining every decision you make. When you forgive them, um, you convert that and reclaim that part of you. So when you forgive them, you go, okay, this has happened. Um, and I'm going to learn as much as I can from that, and I'm going to see where it takes me, but I'm going to let them go, and I'm going to trust that whatever needs to happen to them will happen to them. And I'm just going to get on with my life, and I'm going to try and look at the things that I've done wrong and try and find some kind of forgiveness for myself for that. But I'm just going to let go of that and just trust that. Karma will look after that. I totally agree with that and can to and see the logic and want to embrace it. But then there's a part of me that thinks... If I forgive that person, then I've been a pushover. But that's because you've, you're mistaken forgiveness for being uh, for letting somebody off. Right. We're not letting them off. We haven't got that power. We don't let them off. When you when they say what it says in the Bible um, in the New Testament, um, when you know if your enemy's hunger hunger feed him if he's thirsty give him drink for in so doing thou shall heap coals far on his head. In other words, when you forgive somebody. When you look at when you when you offer somebody compassion instead of anger and dissonance and disappointment and hate, it's caustic to them. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it it finds that part of you that's feeding off anger and feeding off shame and feeding off confusion. It finds it when you find that compassion, and the work is to find the compassion. When you find that part of yourself, it gets completely dissolved. It gets completely. This darkness can't stand in the in the in the face of light. In other words, ignorance can't stand in the face of knowledge. So once you understand that forgiveness is about you letting yourself go free, when you recognise that if somebody abuses you, it's like a, like a possession. Part of them part of them possesses part of you, and you're linked, and you're feeding each other. When you forgive them, you're severing that link. And you're not allowing them to feed off you anymore. Because if you're angry and you're dissonant or you're confused or you're disappointed, over time and space you're feeding them and they possess you. When you forgive them, you're exercising them. It's, a, it's an exorcism. My play Fragile was an exorcism. Mm. But that's about acquiring knowledge about the information and not just looking at it from a perspective of uh, this person's hurt me and if I... If I let them off, if I forgive them, that means I've let them off and then I'm a pushover. Being a pushover is just a choice, isn't it? Um, and also what I do in my own life is I think if something's happened to me, I always take full responsibility. If it's on my doorstep, at some point or another, I've created something that's brought mm. it there. And we don't have to look very hard to see how easily we can manipulate people and how easily we can do the wrong things in our own life without even knowing we're doing it. 
and recognise that we're all responsible. Everybody's responsible for everybody else's karma. We're all connected. If I drop a pebble in the pool, the ripples are going to touch the whole pool, every corner of it. So I start looking at it and going, yeah, you know, I do the small forgiveness and I go, I'll let go. I'll try and understand them. Maybe they're having a bad day. Maybe somewhere along the line, I've done something that's drawn this to me. Um, you try to rehumanize them, and then you start to um, you start to try and find good things about them, and you start to try and find the things you liked about them. You start, and then you start to look at it and go, well, physiologically, this isn't good for me mm. because it's triggering my sympathetic nervous system, and that's closing my immune system down. Mm. Um, and actually, this person's a hundred miles away, but they're controlling me. When you start to look at that intellectually, you go, well, it's worth all my pennies to find a way to forgive them. But not forgiveness in that is in letting off. If you stand by the riverbank for long enough, you watch the bodies of all your enemies go by and you won't feel good about it. You think you will, but you won't. And you know you're there when you see their, you see their karma, like the guy that abused me uh, ended up killing himself um, in London, when I heard, my wife said to me, how do you feel? And I said, sad, I feel compassionate. I couldn't stop myself, I felt compassionate, because this was a guy, at some point, must have been a child, must have had aspirations, must have had the choice of goodness, and somewhere along the line, he's lost that opportunity to live a great life. But he hasn't damaged me, because what I've done is I've taken this energy that he's given me, and it was a massive energy, believe me, it was, it was uh, fathoms deep, this rage, and I've created prolifically in the world. I mean, I've literally, I've, I don't know, 50 books now, thousands of talks, um, lot, I mean, made loads of money along the way as well. Money's not what I aim for now, but along the way I was, you know, making lots of money and travelling the world and did these amazing things, not despite what he did, because of it. So his energy that he implanted in me, when I severed him, I still had that energy in me. I've, I've reclaimed it a bit at a time. I've dipped into it with my bucket and I've created from it. I've literally turned it into, into light or into knowing. So my prolific output is not despite this guy, it's because of it. So I've made something very, very good from that. And it's interesting to me, you didn't seek him out. He literally came into your path. Yeah. The moment I started to look at forgiveness, the moment I started, the moment I decided that I wanted to start working at a higher level, I was a senior martial artist. I was at the high end um, and I wanted to start going into Budo. The moment I started to talk about the internal uh, wrestle, you know, the, what they call the, inner, the greater jihad, the inner war, I started to recognise that forgiveness was one, of the, was one of the partners I needed to wrestle with. The moment I started to contemplate forgiveness and see it as a metaphysical power, the universe put him in a chair opposite me, excuse me, in a, in a cafe in Coventry. Probably hadn't seen him for 20 years. Looked over and there he was, just me and him in the restaurant. And I was 11 again. I mean, you know, I was 11 and I just wanted to walk out. I mean, I wanted to run out. I was so afraid. And I was a blump. I was a big guy then. I was about 16 stone. You know, I would got, I would got all of this armour, all of this war paint, all of this body armour, big back. You know, I could kill in 50 languages and I was 11 again. And I can't tell you how hard it was to walk over. I was nearly crying and say to him, you know, um, can I swear? Are you allowed to swear? I just said, you fucked my life but I forgive you. You need to know I forgive you. And he went to stand up and I, I commanded him. I said, sit down. 
sit down. Now, I had the ability to do something physical, but I knew it wouldn't solve it. I knew it wouldn't. I knew there and then it wouldn't solve it. What it would do was create more karma, more reciprocity. I'd have fed the hate in me. I'd have fed that anger in me. Maybe I'd have felt good for a second, and maybe the, maybe the anti-intellectuals on the internet would have said, well done, you stamped him on his head and all that. But, you know, this higher intellect in me was just going, until you forgive this person, until you find compassion for this person... You are never going to get rid of him. He's always going to be in your life. And I destroyed him with forgiveness. He just, he just melted. He had no idea where to go. And then it was a period of time over that where, you know, you forgive somebody, of course. But, you know, you've, this guy abused me when I was 11. There was a lot of things happened from when I was 11 till when I was, whatever it was at the time, 35 or something. Every action I'd taken since then was, was affected in one way or another by what he did to me. Mm-hmm. So I had to unpick all that as well. I'd hurt a lot of people myself. I've been physically violent as a, as a displacement, F- you know, hugely violent. You know, I'd been a criminal for some time as well, you know, only on the fringes of it, but, you know, I was psychotically jealous. You know, nobody would have looked at me and said, Jeff's a jealous guy, but I was psychotically jealous and I was um, um, psychotically insecure, so insecure. I could have a fight and I, and I was seen as this big martial artist but I was so insecure at some point at my weakest um if my wife left the room she was going to betray me and of course why wouldn't she betray me this teacher betrayed me you know everybody betrayed me the law betrayed me God betrayed me I was betraying myself every single day every single day when I when just when I engage these thoughts when I believe this nonsense so the training enabled me to reclaim the, the part of me that was insecure and jealous, Re, reclaim the part of me that had become violent, reclaim the part of me that had become, uh, you know, this part of me that needed certificates. I've got to have certificates because I'm a piece of shit. I'm a working-class piece of shit. I, I need certificates. I need trophies. I need something to say that I'm valuable. Look at what I've got. Look at how many grades I've got. Look at how many awards I've won. I needed that. I've been able to let go of all that because I let go of him. My life has expanded exponentially because I forgave, but I didn't let him off. Mm. You know, the, the universe cornered him and he killed himself in a hotel room in London. Uh, I think four or five of the people he'd abused over the years all came together at the same time. And, um, you know, his uh, consequences of his life cornered him. Of course, I was writing films about it as well. I was writing books and I was mentioning it. I was writing films. So we must have bumped into that. But I let go of the anger. That it doesn't serve me. It's below my game. I let go of the hate. It does not serve me. It's below my game. I let go of the dissonance. The dissonance went the moment I understood what was going on. Um, And I also looked at the gift. This guy gave me so much energy, so much rage, so much confusion. And I was able to take that raw energy and convert it and and create a prolific life for myself. And of course, I went off the rails quite a few times. But I've also been able to look at those bad things I did, all the violence, and I've been able to convert that as well. Literally convert it into something pure, something beautiful. So that when I'm walking down the street, I don't look at the same world as everybody else is looking at. There's no people around the corner trying to make life difficult for me. People aren't sat in rooms trying to make the world difficult for me. You know, no one's against me. There's not a conspiracy against me, you know. If I can, if I can live a righteous life, if I can live a, a life of virtue... Um, I can be impervious to all that. 
So I just want to go out and I want to, if I'm not kind, if I don't, if, if somebody leaves the room and they don't feel inspired, I haven't done my job. That's, that's become, that's come because mm -hmm. of that. But it's took a lot of work. I've had to do a lot of, uh, studying, a lot of practice, a lot of, um, you know, not, no longer feeding those things because they were feeding off all sorts of negative things. You know, for me, they were feeding off overeating, off violent films, off violent training, off sexual pornography. Um, they were feeding off lots of, lots of juicy things, which one by one I've killed. Mm. And they were, it was a fight. I'm telling you, it was a fight to get rid of some of them. And to get rid of them, I had to really develop my intelligence. I had to really look at what they were doing. I had to really, really go into the depths of it and go, what is this doing? When I watch this violent film, this pornographic film, what is it doing? It's filling me full of chemicals and invading my body and possessing me. And then it's sending me back to it whenever it feels like it. I'm not in control of my own body. You know, people think they're at the top of the food chain. They're not even above Twitter. They can't even control their own moods and emotions. They're not even above Facebook. You know, one phone call, one negative phone call, and their life's, their, you know, their life is taken over by someone criticising them. Mm. So we start to realise that we can reclaim that. It's not about blaming anybody. It's about coming back and going, this is an exciting time to, if I'm in a depression at the moment or if I'm fearful at the moment, this is an exciting time to have a look at that. That's a portal you can go through. You can look at that and go, what can I do with that? It's an energy. What can I, where can I place it? Why am I afraid of it? Why am I afraid of my own body chemistry? Let's look at that. What is it saying to me? Maybe it's not trying to kill me. Maybe it's not trying to hurt me. Maybe it's just trying to give me a message. Where is my life out of balance? What can I do with my life to, make, to bring it back into balance? How can I use this energy? Mm. You know, it's all just about the exchange of energy at the end of the day and the conversion of energy. And also, I mean, my day-to-day my -day job is as a health and beauty writer and I get emails constantly about the next trend. Or, yeah. And I'm... I'm as much as I categorise this podcast as self-help on Apple, I also have a real love-hate relationship with self-help. Mm. And speaking to you, it's really actually crystallised. Why? And that's because these books, and I've written the word stagnant when I was uh, thinking about self-help books yeah. and these self-help memes and these quick, like, mm. you know, ask, believe, receive, all that bullshit. Yeah. It makes it seem like it's just... So easy, yeah. Like that. Mm. And what I mean, you've really done the work. You've read all the books and you've, you've got said to a do lot the of work, names yeah. that I do not know. Mm. But that's what I have definitely noticed is people identifying with a book that based on what I'm getting from you, you've read these thousands of books. And this self help book that might be really colourful on the shelf with a maybe a celebrity or noted author who's, you know, yeah. in the in the new and exciting section in the bookshop, it's a it's less than 1% of a bigger lesson. Yeah. So yes, you might be able to apply it in the short term. Yeah. But to be able to live it, you're probably not going to get that from a sort of juicy, sexy, fied book version. No, but it something. could be a good entry level. Yeah. That's why I, I'm, that's why I like those books. I like okay. The Secret. I like all those books because they're entry level. They're not, you know, they're just trying to get people to look. Mm. So if it just gets you through an hour and it gives you balm, that's okay. Um, but what it's trying to do is excite people and go look a bit deeper. And, you know, if you look at, say, for instance, The Secret and, and this stuff about, you know, I did a Radio 4 programme about this. There was a self-help guy who was very, very anti, 
self-help and he, he wasn't a self-help guy he was a, a journalist for the um one of the broadsheets but he was very angry about self-help and they asked me to come on and just you know as uh, you know as his as his kind of opposite and they said oh you know but they're all just saying you can think it and then you can do it and you know and all this stuff and he says what do you think and I said well well from my perspective I said I know I've thought myself into uh, a fortune and lost it with the same with the same thinking reversed mm -hmm. I said I know I've thought myself into ill health to the point where I've got blood in my urine and I said, and I know I've healed myself with the same thinking reversed. I said, I've created beautiful relationships with my thinking when I've been on my best game. And I said, and I've killed them, killed them dead with jealous thinking. I said, so for me, it's obvious. It's obvious that that works. But, you know, we've got to be able to work it consistently. And if we're going to work it consistently, because that's the ultimate aim, is that, you know, that we, you know, we are the rudd and steer of our own life. But the only way you're going to do that is to find out who you are. Who is it that's doing it? The danger with the self-help books is that they do sell it as easy. Mm -hmm. And we all know that even the people that are selling the books are struggling with their own life issues and their own it things. And the danger, I think, is that they don't say that and they don't tell you that. So that you get this idea that these guys have perfected it and it's fine um, and, you know, that it's very easy. But it's the hardest thing you will ever do. But I like the books because... They're entry level. They give people a way in. Mm. They're not going to come in through the exegesis of the Torah. You know, they're not. Gonna, they're just not going to do that. They're not going to know what exegesis is. They're not going to know what the Torah is. Mm. But they'll come in through the secret. And if they, lead, if they follow the secret, the, the secret, uh, um, the essence of the secret is very true. It's all. A, it, you know, we do manifest our our reality around us all the time. Of mm. course, we do. Everybody's doing that. Even when you go just order a pizza, you're using sound and symbols to create food. Mm. There's no food there. We use sound and symbols. We create food. Mm. Of course, those sound and symbols are backed by a vow, you know, which is you know our credit rating and all the rest of it. But we are creating all the time. Mm. And of course, we've all destroyed things. You know, we, we if our credit rating goes is bad, we haven't kept our vow. Um, our sounds and symbols aren't powerful anymore. We won't be able to get a pizza. So someone that's used his sounds and symbols wrong ends up sleeping in a doorway. And we, if we can as a society, we've got to try and help them get out of that doorway and say to them, you've been given the wrong sounds and the wrong symbols. You don't understand the basic laws of this planet. You don't understand reciprocity. So let's give you something. Um, let's, let's, in, 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 in uh, Judaism, they call it simsum. They say, well, we've got this, this very, very concentrated energy, which you would call God, but it, we, you would never understand it with the intellect. It would be like putting 10,000 volts to a 1,000-watt ball. It would just pop. So we're going to reduce it down, and, and so it ends up in a basic allegory, a very basic allegory, like, uh, like uh, maybe like The Secret or maybe like a very basic self-help book that goes, that's, you know... I mean, The Elephant in the Twig, for instance, um, I just bumped into a girl as I was coming in and said, oh, I love that book. I thought that was about as basic as I could write. But I gave it to one of my friends who worked in a cafe behind the counter. She said, oh, it's so complicated, isn't it? But it's so basic. Mm -hmm. So we've got to go even more basic than that. And that's what most of the Bibles are. They're very, very basic allegorical stories to talk about a, a bigger power, a bigger presence that we can utilize. Mm. So I like these books because they are entry level um, and they don't tell you the whole truth because of course they can't tell you the whole truth any more than you can tell your children. I don't know if you've got children, mm. but uh, you wouldn't tell your children the whole truth. 
because how would they understand it? So you bring it down to Peter and Jane books, you bring it down to simplicity. Mm-hmm. So the masses generally, need, they need stuff like that. They need stuff which gets them in. But if you was to follow that book and then look at its authors and look at what they've read, they might lead you to some of the philosophers. The philosophers might lead you to, um, you know, like if you, if you started looking at um, Milton or Blake um, or um, they're kind of more poets, but the poet philosophers or Dante, and you go, you read them, you go, oh, that's, that's very powerful. And then you go, well, where's their influence? Look at William Blake, for instance. Where's his influence? And, of course, his influence is biblical. So you go, well, okay, well I'll have a look at that then. Mm. And you look at that and it's... And they're so dense, you know, they're, they're, they're frightening to put you off. So, but you, that's what you end up doing. The one book can lead you, the one comic, you know, can lead you back to uh, the bigger books. And the bigger books is, is, not, is no longer about reading. It's more about, and now when you read something like the Zohar, for instance, which is, um, which is one of the explanations of the, of the Old Testament, it's like, it's like downloading, it's not like reading it isn't like reading. It's like it's like your soul is looking at um, uh, a barcode and just downloading it. It's no longer a matter of reading. It's a matter of um, ingesting. Mm. And and at, and at the not at the at the basic level, you won't understand it. But at the le- at the deeper level, your soul or your inner self understands it completely. That's a big way of explaining that these books are necessary because right. we've got our entry level books. Um, and if we've got a judgment on it, it's normally... And, and I have done this myself, so I'm not talking about you, but, you know, because I always used to say to people, oh, you know, these books aren't telling the truth, and I'm going, well, you know, it's an entry level. So if, if, it's an en- if, it, if, we, if we've got too much judgment, it's because we haven't done the rigour, and we look into it and we go, if we go into it a bit deeper, you, know, you look at Eckhart Tolle and people like that, he, well, he's, quite, he's quite heavy. His books are, you know, it's a very strong message, but... They've all got something important to say, and what they say, even though it's been reduced a lot, it, has, it still has that spark of light from its original source. Right. And if you were to follow that light, you would find that it would lead to all of these terms which would become a study, which would become a lifetime study. Mm. And then, it's like I said, it's no longer about reading, then it's about downloading. You're literally downloading, and it's alchemical. It physically changes your infrastructure when you take it in. And again, it's not something I'm in a hurry to prove, but it's something I've experienced. Mm. So I, I have books out there at the very light end, uh, which is an entry level for some someone that maybe is really struggling. Um, and then I've got stuff, this one I've just got coming out now, it's called The Divine CEO after this one. And it's at the heavy end where it's kind of saying, OK, you've got this far. Um, it's time to really, really start looking at very closely who you are and who you're not mm. and start to eliminate who you're not start to clean all those parts away reclaim them and then they you know i i, I always try to reference lots of books when i'm re- writing myself so it might lead people on, on another path mm. they might find etty hillison who was this this normal girl that ended up communicating directly and intimately with consciousness in a nazi death camp but she was an ordinary selfish um everyday girl that just wanted to do well in the world and wanted wanted a man and all that but when you read her story and about how she gradually expanded because of her circumstances um she is inspirational you know all she cared about in the end was was service about looking out for people about gratitude about gratitude and about charity 
you know, and she, she made this work mm. in, you know, in the most severe place on the planet. Same as Viktor Frankl did exactly the same, didn't he? Have you read Viktor Frankl, Death, Man's, Man's Search for Meaning? No. Viktor Frankl uh, developed a system called logotherapy, which is about, it means, logo, logos means purpose, man's search for purpose. Um, and in the Old Testament, logos meant God or or the source. So it's man's search for his source. You know, so our purpose is our source. So, um, but if you look at man's search for meaning, it's not a very big book. Um, and the second half of it is about logotherapy because he became a therapist. Um, it, this was a man that made it work in one of the most heinous um, locations on the planet in history and time. This stuff we're talking about now, this idea about, uh, you know, about breaking the boundaries of the physical world and, you know, looking at things more metaphysically and taking more control about finding out who we were. He made it work in a Nazi death camp. He was so reduced. Everything was so reduced. He was reading the Torah every day, which is the um, Judaic kind of Bible. Um, and the, the guards kept taking off him and stealing. He ended up with one page of the Torah. And he was reading one page to keep himself sane. And the Torah is supposed to be the blueprint of the universe. It's supposed to be the key to reciprocal, the reciprocal universe. The, the, the guards took that page off him. And he sat there dejected. And this voice in his head said, we don't want you to read the Torah anymore, Victor. We want you to be the Torah. So he had to be the Torah in this place. His wife was in another camp. And you need to read it. I won't, I won't paraphrase it, but he had metaphysical experiences in this place that are beyond anything, you know, that most people would even understand. But he had them because he had nothing else. He was stripped of every other resource and all he was left with was, it was this opportunity to connect to consciousness. And he did. And he had miracles and serendipities every single day. He became one of the best, one of the most notorious, one of the most um, renowned speakers of his generation. All of the big, all of the big spiritual guys you look at now, they, their claim to fame was hosted on the same stage as Viktor Frankl. I met Viktor Frankl. Mm. This is a man who made it work, in, and his guides were saying to him, "If you can make it work here, you can show anybody, everybody, everybody anywhere that it's possible to make it work anywhere. Mm. You're in a factory job and it feels terrible." It won't work in this place. It won't work where I am. It won't work with my partner. It won't work in my environment. It won't work with my government. He made it work in the, one of the most heinous places on the planet. Mm. So it's saying, if he can make it work there, you can make it work where you are now. There's hope for everybody. Mm. And these people are out there. Their stories are out there. We don't think they're there, but already your universe has just expanded because already you're thinking about Viktor Frankl. Are you reading my mind? Yeah. <laughs> Just a bit. And you're already thinking about Etty, who's this, who's this girl who I wished I could have met, mm. but she's already talking to me saying, when well, you did meet me, you sat with me for three months when you wrote your book. Have you forgotten already? <laughs> but she was such a beautiful girl, and she was, but she was so sharp. She was going, you, you want to you clean the environment, but you're filling yourself full of cigarettes. You know, you want to change the world, but you won't even change your eating habits. You hate Hitler but you're a fascist in your own office. She said she, she, she could just see people like an x-ray. She's saying, you know, we've got no right to tell people to change if we don't change. We've mm. got no right to tell people to change if we can't change ourselves. She was so, mm. so, uh, I mean, I think I'm blunt sometimes, but she was so deliciously blunt. 
but she's she just if you read if you read her letters um, she's her letters were because she wrote she wrote to people from these were like modern day epistles so she wrote to people from um from Auschwitz and uh, her letters were very very profound you know but she found it in that place Victor Frankl found it in that place there's another book called The Choice uh, um and uh, I can't remember the author's name I apologize for that but she she was um she was um she was mentored by Victor Frankl, but she was in Auschwitz as well. And she she dedicated her life to therapy. And she talks about it. My my daughter's reading her book at the moment. And she's, I said, what's the big thing you've got from it? What's the big thing you've got from it? Do the work. You've got to do more work than you think is possible. You've got to do more work than you think you can cope with. Do the work. Do the rigor. Don't take anybody's, don't take anybody's advice. You know, don't take anyone's limitations. And if someone wants to manage your expectations, kick them out of the room because that means they want you to think small. Want you to think small like them. I hate the phrase manage expectations. Yeah, because it just means, oh, you want me to think small then, yeah. So it's this idea that these people are there and the podcast like this will suddenly say to someone, oh, well, I remember someone mentioning, I remember going to Germany to teach and not wanting to go. I was so much resistance and I went there and I went there and I went there just to hear the word Bhagavad Gita. And it sounded so exotic. And I thought, oh, what's that? This was years before I read it. What's that? That's, and he goes, oh, it's from the Hindu thing. I didn't even know what the Hindu thing was, the Hindu text was. But it led me, it was a, it, the guy that mentioned the name was very erudite. Very, very smart guy. And I thought, I'm going to get that. And I, I didn't get it until I pushed beyond my own boundaries. So I went to Germany to teach. And I didn't want to be there, and it was very uncomfortable. It was a different language, and um, it was a different style. And I went there, and the reward I got was that. I went to um, to do a talk in a prison um, up north somewhere. I did a lot of talks in prisons, and I didn't want to go to this place. But I went there, and one of the guys that was working there mentioned the word... Um, it'll come to me in a minute. doesn't matter. I've obviously not meant to say it at the moment, but he mentioned a word um, from the bi- biblical canon and um, eschatology, that was the word, mm-hmm. and I'd never heard of it. And he goes, oh, it's, a, it's about the second coming of Christ, but it doesn't really mean the second coming of Christ. It means the second coming of consciousness. It means, the, it means consciousness as the return of our expansion of knowing, of understanding. And I went off and did a big, big study on eschatology, and there's a chapter in my new book about it. But I had to go to this prison mm. and serve these kids in prison and talk to these kids in prison before that one word was given me. And that one word was just an intuition. It wasn't, it wasn't everything I read. I read reams on it. It wasn't everything I read. It was just like the initial... In, in Judaism, they call it um, hokama. It's like the, the divine inspiration, a spark. Mm. I had to go away and cogitate and read and study and, and search. And suddenly it, I got a lot of understanding. And then suddenly the understanding spilled and it became knowing. I knew. I knew mm. what it meant. Mm. So it's this idea that um, all of this stuff is already there. All of it. The, you know, the, the venom, the antidote to the venom that's rushing around your veins right now is the the antidote is in the venom it's there mm. so the depression the fear the antidote is is within the problem and there are books out there and teachers out there that will help us to um unfold that and, but we have to do the work mm. so my daughter said that's the big thing she got 
you, this was a woman that was uh, one at the top end of the psychotherapy, but she was still having to do the work. Who do you think were her best teachers? Herself. What do you reckon? Even even someone right in front of her. Her. The people that the people she was mentoring. Oh right. She didn't get the reward until she. Of course, she was her own teacher, mm. but she, she didn't get the information that she knew until she offered it to other people. And the, everyone she mentored, everyone she gave therapy to, this is in the book, The Choice, were, they, they were the ones that taught her. They were the ones that um, you know, gave her what she needed. Because in order to give them the answer, she had to locate it and draw it down and give it to them. And when she gave it to them, of course, she received it herself. So she took it from this bank of... Uh, you know, the newest sphere, whatever, whatever you want to call it, or the divine, um, what do they call it? Um, anyway, this, this, this whole, they call it a newest sphere, where, where all the information of, that's ever been learned is stored. We can access it whenever we want. Mm. Um, and when somebody asks you and you're serving them, you draw, them down, draw it down and tell them something you didn't know. So it comes from a teacherless realm. So her best teachers were the people she was mentoring. But every time she went to mentor people, every time she went to do a podcast, or every time she went to do, it was difficult. Mm. But every time she did it, she was given something new. Mm. And every, like someone that's going to be sitting there who's going to have to make a big effort to come and listen to your podcast because everything inside them will say, nothing's going to change. But the effort will be rewarded by a piece of information they'll get from this today that will take them into a direction of... Uh, learning and expansion i really feel like i followed the light <laughs> yeah but you that you know that this introduction was done a long time ago wasn't it and then you know like you said people mention my name and mm. um and you know and then suddenly you're here and we're both hearing this because i'm saying things you know I'm, I'm pulling things from lots of different places um talking above the room as somebody said to me mm. once which means you know you can kind of say deep esoteric things, but also very ordinary, like, you know, get your palate right, you know. Mm. So you're trying to, you, hopefully that's, there'll be something for everybody that's listening. But no, not least me and you. Yeah. Because we've turned up, we're here. I think so. And I'm going to do something unprecedented now, actually. I mean, there's another five hours of conversation <laughs> that we could very easily have, but I'll come back. But I'm going to do something unprecedented in that I'm, um, I told a very dear friend of mine that I was interviewing you. And or that you were coming on the podcast is probably the best way of describing it. And he asked if he could send some questions in. Yeah. And so he says, hello, Ems. Here are three main questions for Jeff and four bonus questions. Feel free to ask them or not ask them. Not sure how suitable they be, they'll be for your chat. And obviously you've got a ton of questions already. I'm actually jealous you're hanging out with him. <laughs> <laughs> so the first one, and uh, we've touched on it, obviously, um, but it's not my area of expertise, is the fact that you have a, a vast martial arts background. And he sent me a very long WhatsApp a little while ago about the fence. Yeah. Um, but this particular question is, in their self-protection video, the pavement area... Oh, the pavement arena, yeah. Arena. Uh, Peter Constadine, is it Constadine? Yeah. And Jeff described Jeff Cooper's four colour-coded states of alertness. Yeah. White, which is switched off, through to yellow, then orange, then red, which is fight or flight. They teach that people should be in condition yellow all the time, not being paranoid, but being switched on, mm. being aware of what's happening around you 360 degrees. He's also given me the YouTube link to see this in action. The question is, do you still walk around in condition yellow? Do you still think regular people should live in condition yellow? I think they should live in condition yellow um, <clears throat> physically 
and environmentally, but also metaphysically. So we need to be aware, not just of the fact that there may be potential attackers out there, but we need to be aware of the potential attackers within us, mm. our own perceptions, our own, our own beliefs, our own shadows, our own pain bodies. Most of the time we're attacked not by the things out in the world, we're attacked by our own sub-vocalisation, by, our own, uh, by our, our own beliefs or by our own limitations or by our own education. But like, you know, we might be attacked by a voice in the head that comes from our mum. So we need to be aware all the time of not just the external world, but the internal world as well. So we need to be, we need this awareness code isn't just about an awareness that someone might attack. Mm. It's also an awareness of attack ritual, how attack ritual works, what their game plan is so that you can spot it five minutes before it happens. Mm. I could spot a fight in a nightclub in the queue, uh, 10 down two hours before it kicked off. That was, a, that was the next... And the, the environment expanded my awareness to such a degree because um, my life was... My life depended on it. My awareness expanded so much that I could, I could, see, I could see into the future. So I'd look down the line and I could tell by a guy further down by his body language, by how he was, mm. that in, in uh, uh, two minutes' time or five hours' time he would be fighting. Right. So I'd walk down the queue and say, not tonight. And I'd have to try and explain to him why he was being kicked out for something that he was going to do in five hours' time. <laughs> that, but that's awareness. But we've all got those um, signifiers, but mm. we don't notice them because we're just not switched on. And we don't want to notice them because we're too English, we get too embarrassed. But they're there. They're, so it's understanding the attack ritual, but it's also when, when we talk about um, the adverse forces on the inside, our own old scripts mm. we've got to recognize their attack ritual we've got to be aware of it we've got to be aware of how they rise how they attack how they uh, use rhetoric to get into our thinking mm. and again i've written a lot about this in notes but it's also um specifically in um eckhart tolle's book the power of now mm. he specifically talks about exactly the same as the jeff color jeff cooper color codes but from the internal perspective so yeah i'm massively aware more aware than ever but i'm more aware of not falling out of alignment mm. so i'm aligned to my authentic self i'm aligned to my spirit if i fall out of alignment i will be noticed very quickly and I will draw negativity into, into my life. So I'm, I'm aware that I've got to keep the alignment to virtue all the time. So yeah, I still do more than ever. Question two is many people from bouncers to sports people find it hard to adjust to normal day to day life after they leave their dangerous slash exhilarating careers behind because their new day to day life lives lack not only the fear and danger, but also the thrill and aliveness of their old lives. Fear and excitement are often two sides of the same coin. Do you in any way miss the danger, adrenaline, buzz, violence of working on the doors? And do you do anything to replace or replicate that buzz or aliveness in some way? He's very insightful, isn't he? He's yeah. a good question. Very good question. Both good questions. Um, the, the, uh, if he thinks that was exciting, working the doors, mm -hmm. and, uh, and he should read notes, because in notes I go heavily into what I learned metaphysically from working the doors. Mm -hmm. What I learned from working the doors on a physical level is is uh is minute compared to what i learned metaphysically mm -hmm. and it's took me 30 years of processing to understand what what that metaphysical learning was so um when you go from the smaller jihad which is the 
outer battle, which is the nightclub doors and mm. all of that, which seems exhilarating. And you go to the greater jihad, which is the internal life and the battle with our own perceptions and our own beliefs. The, the level of danger and the level of exhilaration is, uh, is a hundredfold. So it's, it's very much still in my life, um, but it's internal and external. And I recognise that what happens outside of me is just merely a projection of what's inside me. So if I want to fix what's going on out there, I'd need to turn in and fix it in here. Muhammad, when, when Muhammad was in his village, the Prophet Muhammad, he was watching all the soldiers coming back from war and he was doing that, you know, kind of quietly clapping them, well done on the small jihad, he said. Well done on the lesser jihad. Now, bearing in mind, people were coming back dismembered. Mm. People were dying. Some people had been killed. And they were very angry. What do you mean, the lesser jihad? He goes, well, that's, you know, that's the lesser jihad. He said, when you turn inwards and you start to reclaim the parts of you that are inside, that's the greater jihad. So he, he, he felt that physical war where people died and went over the top was, was small compared to what happens when you go mm. in. And he's, he's never been more right. Absolutely so, so the exhilaration is still there and the fear is still there by bucket, by bucket loads. <laughs> <laughs> right, moving on to question three. Most, if not all women, are concerned about their own personal safety and would like to learn how to defend themselves from an attacker. What do you recommend for women, particularly those who are small in stature and physical strength, who want to learn effective self-protection that they can call on in a potential physical attack? And he has note, he put a note here. Because of their belief in a preemptive strike, Jeff and Peter make a big distinction between self-protection and self-defence. They teach the former. That's his note. You said they said that last bit again. Uh, because of their belief in a preemptive strike, Jeff and Peter make a big distinction between self-protection and yeah. self-defence. Yeah. They teach the former. Yeah, yeah. We we teach self-protection, which is first of all you've got to come to the reality, the reality of what works in a real fight, and preemption is the only constant. It's the mm. only thing that works as a consistent. Uh, but what we learned, me and Sharon in particular, and me and Peter from going around the country, because we went around, all around the world really teaching, was that most people won't be able to make physical self-defence work unless they dedicate their whole lives to it, and most people don't want to do that. They have a false idea of what self-defence is and what will work. Um, so we developed a system of self-protection, which is like the Cooper Colour Code, where we, te- we taught people avoidance, escape, verbal dissuasion, loopholing, posturing, all sorts of things, everything but the, the physical um, the physical preemption. So we taught them how to spot attack rituals, how to be aware, how to be aware of their own body chemistry, how to be aware of how their own body chemistry can be used against them. If I suddenly became loud and postured, I could trigger your adrenaline mm-hmm. and put you into a, a state of fight or, uh, flight or f- freeze so that you, you would be easily to manage and you would be so afraid that I'd be able to do anything I wanted to do. So I, we, we taught people to understand their body, their body chemicals and how to override them. But we were also very honest with people. This will not work for you, whether you're a male or a female, if you don't dedicate your life to it. And not many people want to dedicate their life to it. So we decided not to try and teach people to be firemen. We taught people how to prevent fires how to avoid fires. We didn't p- teach people how to be paramedics. We taught them how to avoid being knocked over by a car. So we, we, we taught them awareness and avoidance mm-hmm. because we knew we were like highly skilled. Peter's a ninth dan. I've I'm I'm reached something like an eighth dan. 
um, and I worked in very violent environments. And as a very, very experienced person, it was still difficult to make it work because it was the, the, the environments were so volatile and there was there were so many contributing factors. So if we were going to struggle as big, physical, full-time martial artists and full-time security people, ordinary people, men or women of a smaller stature, were going to struggle as well. So we would teach them techniques and we would teach them that preemption is the only thing that's going to reliably work. But even that won't work if you don't know how to be preemptive and you don't know how to hit very, very hard. Um, so we would say to people, so that's not likely to work for you, but this is what will work, avoidance. We all know, uh, you know, we all know the shitholes where shitheads hang out. So don't, don't go to the shitholes. Don't hang about where shitheads hang about, but don't be a shithead yourself. Mm. You know, so we, we know that, don't we? So we can avoid those places. We don't have to walk across the park at night to take a short just because we should be able to. We recognise that it's a jungle and that there are predators and that if we put ourselves in harm's way, we're probably going to get harmed. So we override our pride and, and our rights and we just go, I'm not going to take a shortcut home. I'm going to be careful about the taxi I get in and I'm going to be hyper aware of what's going on around me. That's what's happening. That's what's happening in the world. So... We would just teach people mass mass awareness, but not just about attacks, but about attack rituals. Most people are attacked, and the first thing they know about it is when they're attacked. They don't recognise that people have a whole fight strategy of of entering uh, what they call the the, uh, the interview. They, you know, they might spot you five, ten minutes, <clears throat> fifteen minutes before you might be followed. They might come up and just say, "Excuse me, have you got the time?" And suddenly, boom, they attack. And all you do is go, you just asked me the time and attacked me and you don't know anything else. But mm. there was actually another 30 minutes before that even happened. That was, you could have noticed. You could have noticed, yeah, if you're aware. So it's just about being aware, especially if you're out and about and you, you know, you, you've got you on the phone or you're carrying mm. an expensive handbag or, um, you know, if you're in the car, if the car's not locked and stuff like that, you know, mm. you you just got to make yourself up what we call a hard target. Mm. You make yourself a hard target. But exactly the same metaphysically, internally, you make yourself a hard target for adverse forces, whether they're external or internal, by living life in the centre, living life a life of virtue. Don't create any negative karma with your thinking, saying and doing. That will attract negativity into your life. Mm. If you live in the centre, you're invisible. These, these things you see on Harry Potter, the invisible cloak and all that, they're real. They're real. <laughs> virtue makes you invisible. When you live in a life of virtue, when you live and you don't attract negative, you don't, you don't create negativity, you will avoid negativity. But the moment you fall into any of those traits, you will be noticed and you will be, most, most people will you know, probably be targeted. So what I learnt about physical self-defence is exactly what I work on the inside as well. I know it's probably, it's probably um, too much for, for this podcast mm. because, it, because it, demands, it demands a qualification, mm -hmm. which, which is I've just this book I've done with Matthew and then I've done a book called The Divine CEO. There's 300,000 words that hopefully will qualify what I'm saying yeah. and, and if nothing else, act as an entry level onto more learning. Because it's a much bigger subject. But, but they're great questions and they're informed questions as well. Four bonus questions. Four bonus questions, right. What's Quick keep, fire. Yeah, what's keeping you up at night? I'd be really interested to know what Jeff's greatest fear is 
are these days if there is one yeah the my greatest fear is is losing i've found a connection with god i've found a connection with uh, my source uh, i can't really find the right word for it but it's very real it's very tangible mm. my my only legitimate fear i have sometimes I have trivial fears that i have to bat away but my only legitimate fear is falling out of alignment with that because mm. when i have fallen out of alignment with it it's been very painful mm. but it's a bit like um it's a bit like being a uh, an Olympic level judo player. You have one second or or, or five seconds of um, distraction, and you've lost the fight. Right. You're on your back. You you know I, I I did judo at a very high level. I trained with Neil Adams full time. Neil Adams is probably the greatest occidental judo player of his generation. I was privileged to train with him full time for eighteen months had five judo suits but in that level they were all olympic players um if you didn't if you lost concentration you got thrown or you got choked out mm. um so my fear the level i'm working at, at the moment or that level i'm aiming at it, the fear is um is being arrogant mm. or 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 in, encountering pride or anything like that and falling out of alignment because you can get caught really, really quickly. So my fear is losing my connection with the source that I found. That's my, that's my legitimate fear. What's your favourite documentary or movie? Or what's the film that changed your life? Um, a book that, one of the books that changed my life was um, Watership Down. Uh, I was going through a very bad depression when I was still working in the factories and still I didn't know any of this stuff. And I read the watership. I read Watership Down um, about this young, small uh, rabbit called Hazel, and how he went on to become the leader of this troop of um, this troop of rabbits. It was ju it was just so inspirational. I mean, he took on a cat. It was just he was afraid, but he was fearless. And he was so small and insignificant. And, and some of the bigger rabbits who were like the policemen within this warren kind of scoffed at him, but he ended up becoming their leader. And I love the fact that he was just so courageous and he followed his insight, he followed his instinct. But that one book and that one character, as silly as it sounds, yanked me out of a depression, literally pulled me. I remember, I remember reading it. I was on nights in a chemical factory and I was steeped in depression. And I remember reading it and feeling such hope, such hope. So books can really transform people. Um, so Watership Down. And there's a great people, a great, a great book, a documentary called The Big Short. Have you seen it? Is that the one about the um, housing crisis? Yeah, yeah, but you've got to watch it. It's just, it's like the truth is right in front of everybody. I mean, everybody. I'm watching it and thinking, it's this big scandal about mortgages and money and, and it ended up collapsing the American economy, literally collapsing mm. it. And it was in front of everybody, but everyone was denying it. Everybody knew about it, but they all didn't know about it. And there was just this one guy that noticed something wasn't right. And he spent, I think he spent one day of rigor, just one day of rigor, and he went below the surface and he figured out what was going on. He figured out that there was this big scam going on and that the newspapers, the government and everybody else, all of these informed people were in on it, but all of them were denying it. But everyone was in on it because uh, their livelihoods depended on mm -hmm. it, their mortgages, their kids, kids schooling. And it's this, it's, the, the documentary talks about takes you through it's not a documentary actually it's a film but mm. it's based on a true story but it takes you through the discovery of that but i remember the the um 
I remember the character saying to his boss, we're going to bet against all of these things. They're all going to fail. The whole economy is going to fail and we're going to bet against it. We're going to make a lot of money. And he says to him, I've got three guys in my office or two guys in my office. These are the experts in the world. They are the experts in the world. Are you telling me you know more than them? He goes, yeah, they're not looking. They're not looking because they don't want to see. Mm-hmm. He goes, you can't bet against it. He goes, I'm telling you, they're not looking. But he only did one day of rigor. Mm. I was so excited by this because I just thought, what else aren't we being told? Mm. What else don't we know about? What else aren't we seeing? What are, what are we not seeing? What else are we not seeing? Do the rigour. Do mm. the rigour. Do the rigour. Do the work. And it's there. It's there for anybody. You've got depression. Do the rigour. Go below it. Mm. Below it. Go below the surface. There's something there. Don't take anybody else's word for it. Do the rigour. You feel fear. You don't think you can make money. You can't make your relationship work. Do the rigour. The answer, the answer to the problem is in the problem. Mm. And I just love the fact that he, he just spent, I think, I think it was, I may, I may have reduced it a bit, but I think he just did one day of solid rigour and they bet everything on the economy failing and it did. And, but it also, it was also about integrity and about mm. uh, honour and virtue and about even these people that were so angry about it still made loads of money from it because they couldn't resist. They couldn't yeah. not make it. It was it would really made you think to yourself, would I would I have been brave enough to not take the 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 twenty million that I'm gonna make just by betting against it, even though I know old ladies are gonna lose their houses and even though I know um, you know, young couples are gonna lose their houses. And and very, very good people did mm. just that. They knew it and they still took the money and you just think, oh, and I just felt, I felt really sorry for them because I've lost my integrity a lot in my life and I know how painful it is. Mm. It's very, very painful. So I would say The Big Short is a great film just for that one scene mm. where he goes, mm. I did the rigour. They're not, these guys who know everything aren't seeing because they don't want to see. And in, in, in Islam, they call it Yakim. Yakim means certainty. And it's one of the names, one of the 99 names of Allah. And it means certainty yakin means certainty and there are three levels to certainty it says the truth is undeniably right in front of you there are three levels of certainty intellectual understanding which is just that kind of i know this is right but i can't do it um when you do the rigor you get understanding which is like visual you can suddenly see the workings of it and you suddenly see it's possible you can do it and then suddenly it tips and it becomes a reality for instance when i when I wanted to publish a book, it was impossible for me because I didn't think it was possible. So I was intuited to find people like me that had done it, people from my background. So I found some people from me after a lot of rigour who had written books and been published. Now, I knew it's possible for them, so I knew it's possible, but I didn't think it was possible for me because every time I thought about publishing a book myself, I was just full of doubt and insecurity and um, you know, self-loathing. So I did the rigour on that, I did the work on it, and I wrote the book and, and I expanded my internet, and I expanded that one intuition and suddenly it tipped and I had a book published. And on the back of that one book, I, pu- I published 50 books and there's in, it's in 21 languages, they've become films, they've become plays. That one thing transformed my life. That's, mm. that's Shikim, mm. that's certainty. And the certainty is undeniably right in front of everybody but they don't see it because they take yes for an answer. They don't do the rigour. And I understand it because I hadn't as well. So it's not just about going like, a, like an intuition. We've got to take it. We've got to work with it. We've got to expand it. Mm. We've got to add leaven. We've got to let it grow. 
and then it become then we get so much understanding about it that suddenly it tips into a reality and then you go yeah well of course it's possible to write a book and publish a book but if it's possible to write a book why isn't it possible to do five books mm. if i can do a book why can't i do a play if i can do a play why can't i do a film if i can do a film why can't i win a bafta if i can win a bafta why can't i live in london why can't i buy an apartment in london if i if i you know, if I'm certain about something, why can't I just get rid of all that and just get a backpack and travel around the world? I mean, there are no limitations. So, yeah, um, certainty, yakim, uh, um, comes from Islam. And I got it from a friend of mine called Wail, who was a student who used to travel over from Dubai once a month to train with me. And he said he was on the, going to Mecca with his mum. And he said, on the road to Mecca, there was tens of thousands of people. He said, there was a bit of a kerfuffle going over on the side. He said, and there was a healer there. And uh, he was healing people. And there was loads of doctors and that around him going, keep away from this man, he's a charlatan. He, he doesn't know what he's doing. He's not a real doctor. He's not qualified. And he said, Wales said to me, I thought, yeah, I don't like the look of that. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's not a doctor. But his mum had a, an existing knee complaint that she'd been suffering with for a long time. She said, I don't care what anybody says, I'm going to go and see him. <laughs> so they went over. And uh, to cut a long story short, this guy put his hands on her and healed her. And Wales was, I mean, he watched it. He was just amazed. He just said, uh, how, how did you do that? And he said, Yakim. And he said, what do you mean? He said, certainty. I'm just certain that it was possible. I'm certain that I could heal her. Um, Yakim is one of, like I said, it's one of the names mm. of God. So he said, I just pulled the energy through me and healed her. And that's where I got that from. Mm -hmm. So I went and studied Yakim and I, you know, read the Quran and, you know, read people like Al-Ghazali and lots of the great, you know, Muslim mystics and um, just this wealth of knowledge. But they all come back to the same thing. The truth is undeniably right in front of you and the truth is love. The truth mm. is charity. Next quick fire question, as it were. What are your morning <laughs> rituals? What do the first 60 minutes of your day look like? Normally about quarter past five, I'll get up. I'll do some qigong, uh, which is about breath, mm -hmm. which is just about um, bringing breath in from the earth and from the air and filling myself with it. Then I do about 90 minute um, meditation. Wow. Normally the first meditation is Tonglen. Tonglen is uh, a healing meditation. It's from Buddhism. And Tonglen is about um, drawing uh, healing energy into you, by locating to people that you know who are suffering and putting your hands on them and practicing healing. So it's a, it's a specific technique within Buddhism where it's called Tonglen. It's where you go out, where you meditate on people that are suffering and you go to them and you say, may they suffering, may they be free of suffering. May they return to you. May they be, may they be full of peace, that, that kind of thing. So that's my first meditation. Depending on my routine, if I'm writing, my day will all be about writing. Mm. But normally after that, my wife's awake, about quarter, normally about quarter to seven, seven o'clock. And I make my wife some breakfast and I'll have some time with her. I'll make her a second cup of tea <laughs> and then I'll go down. And at the moment I'm studying, um, so I'm, I'll go down. I'm reading, um, uh, I'm st I've been studying the Torah um, for, for quite a while, Judaism. Um, uh, so I'll, at the moment I'm, I'm kind of reading a lot about that and doing lots of notes on that. I'm doing, like, when I read the Zohar, for instance, um, that was full-time reading for about four months. I did four books full of notes. 
then when I finished reading the books, I went into the notes and reduced the notes down to 15 pages. Then I reduced the 15 pages down to one page. So that was just uh, a contraction in order to get the essence of what Judaism was saying to me. And those books were sent to me as a gift um, three years ago. I wasn't ready to read them at the time, but they came to me as a gift after I exerted myself in a, in a service that I won't go into, but I exerted myself. And that came as a gift. Um, and three years later, I was ready to look at it. So I've, I've been studying that. But after that, I'm, I'm going to write another book. I've got another book that's bubbling about. And then the final quickfire question is, do you have a quote that you live by, uh, that you live your life by or think of often? Live for self, by the self. Never let the self droop down. The self is the self's only enemy. The self is the self's only friend. It's from the Bhagavad Gita. And it's saying that you are your only enemy, you, you're your only friend. When, when, uh, when um, Arjuna Pandava goes into the battle of Guru, etc., to win his kingdom back, the whole world is at war, and they're all in this battlefield. Uh, he falls into fear, and Lord Krishna, who's his chariot driver, delivers a, um, a spiritual discourse, which is called the Gita, to bring him back into alignment, which falls into fear. And uh, Krishna is saying to him, your, f- your fear is illusory. You have, you have uh, a duty to go out and win your kingdom back. So he's not talking about a physical kingdom in the world, although he is, but mm. it's allegorically he's talking about the kingdom we've lost within. Our kingdom's been taken over by the false ego, and most people don't know who they are. So this is about our battle with perception, our battle with wrong education, our battle with all of the things that are um, attacking us every single day, all the negative news. So there's one line in there where he says, you've only got to get yourself right. So the higher self lifts the lower self. The higher self never lets the lower self droop down. The lower self is the self, is the, the, the lower self is the self's only enemy. The higher self is the, is, the, is the lower self's only friend. So we have this part of us that is ready to assist and ready to teach and ready to guide, but we have to connect to it. Mm. And each of us has to connect in our own way. We have to find religion. Religion means, uh, it, it, the, the root word comes from the word relegari, which means to reconnect, to reconnect to our source, man to man, man to his source. So we have to reconnect to our source. And at that source, when we reconnect to it through nature, through meditation, through whatever, however you reconnect to it, that part of you will become, your soul will teach you, so that part of you will direct you in your life perfectly. It will be it will be like light traveling through water. It will calculate the billions of possible routes and give you the optimum route. So you won't have to try and work it out manually, but you have to connect yourself first. And that's that's the journey. Mm. That's the path. And if that path starts with the, the small things like we said about just controlling the things that you can control, you can control what you eat, you can control what you drink, you can control what you say. You can, you can control what you think, even if you don't think, even if you don't believe you can. You can stop it, something rising up. No, reality is based on... Reality is... Um, um, uh, reality, lives, reality is at the level of engagement. Mm. So we have to be careful about what we engage intellectually. So we, these things rise up and we just think, that's another thought of mine, that's a thought of mine. We don't ever question that they might not be our thoughts. You know, these gear changes between personalities are so subtle, we don't even know we've changed. Mm. Then people do things and go, uh, oh, I don't know what came over me, I wasn't myself. And, and they'll find lots of reasons why 
something happened, but they don't know why. And it's because they're taken over by an old script, an old belief. Maybe someone's implanted it in them, you know. So it's um, from the Gita, lift the self by the self. Never let the self droop down. The self is the self's only enemy. The self is the self's only friend. Whenever I come back to, um, if I want to come back to the core of what I'm doing, that's what I come back to. I haven't got to wait for the government. I haven't got to wait for my local council. I haven't got to wait for anybody. I've just got to do it myself. I've got to start working. And you'd be surprised at how much information is out there when you start, you know. And the teachers that are waiting for you, they're there. They're desperate. They really want to help, you know, because when they serve you, it serves them. Well, I knew this conversation was going to uh, be epic. <laughs> but um, one of my favourite sayings is, you always want to be playing tennis for someone who's better than you, because that's how you get better. That's very true. And um, this conversation has definitely made me better. Like, oh, thank you. It's a gateway to a lot. And um, I, like, I'm coming up to doing this podcast for four years. And yeah, this is a really special conversation. So no. thank you so much for no, your generosity. It's my pleasure, Bab, my pleasure. And if anyone's out there listening and you want to reduce it to one thing, kindness, be kind, be kind, be kind, just be kind. Thank you so much. Nice. All the links to everything that we have discussed will be in the show notes, including all of those books that Jeff has written. And I can't even remember what else. So many books that you've referenced as well as written, but they'll all be in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening. I really hope that you enjoyed that conversation between Jeff and I. If you want to get in touch with me, please do email me at thebeautypodcast at gmail.com. I would be so happy to hear from you. So, so happy. You can also DM me on Instagram and Twitter where I'm at Emma Guns. And if you want to speak to me and thousands of other listeners to this podcast, then please do click the link in the show notes, which can be found wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode and click the link to join the Facebook forum. Answer the two questions, agree to the forum rules, and you'll be welcomed in by me and thousands of other listeners to this podcast with open arms. And a quick note about Jeff. Since we recorded the podcast, I have been reading his book, The Beginner's Guide to Darkness. The link will be in the show notes. It is unputdownable and probably the best book I've ever read in terms of getting your head in the, in the right place. Just a little side note from me, but as I said, that link will be in the show notes, which can be found wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode. Thank you so much for listening. I will see you on the next one. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.